What is? What was that? So my uh, neighbor's child does not want to go to bed. Nice. That's wonderful that they can share with the whole neighborhood. Well, the tennis courts, it echoes. But hello, everyone. I'm not even going to pretend that there's not a bunch of crap behind that backdrop. So, yeah, what's going on? A lot of congratulations in the comments already for our buddy Billy Jenkins, who is about to have, I believe, baby number two. Yes, yes. He is a proven breeder from what I gather. Good call, Scott. This is episode 90 of Snakes and Stogies, brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons, right up here in the corner. Uh, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, hunt them down, follow them. And, uh, yeah. 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 And, dude, it, it, like, Obviously, they're they're our friends, and we want to support our friends every chance we get. But take my take our friendship out of it. Like they have some amazing animals, and they show so many great videos of their husbandry and their techniques, and even if everything from how they pull babies and eggs and stuff to you know how to get an abador out of the cage when it doesn't want to, you know. Mm-hmm. And dude, we just can't speak highly enough about them. They're amazing. They have impeccable taste. That they do. Uh, so Casey's supposed to be joining us. I sent him the link. I don't know where that fool's at. He'll get here when he gets here. How about that? He can be fashionably late. It's all right. We got a, a slow start to today. I like the intro. Did, did everyone hear the rattlesnake rattle? Yeah, that's. I need to go. Th- back and fix that and mute it because it was super duper loud on my yeah i know it is (laughs) so but equally awesome what do you know what species it was because the rattle was almost like like ivory looking super cool i'll have to rewind that later and watch that maybe a hellerai or something yeah maybe maybe very cool so episode 90 man we we got a little we got a little bit on the plate tonight right what are we gonna do for 100 man I don't know. That's a good question. That's a, a monumental event, I think. We'll have to do something. We'll have to do... I, I'd like to do another charity thing if we could. You know, That would be cool. Yeah, that would be. Yeah. What's, uh, what's been happening this week? Anything uh, new? Honestly, not really. Um, I did something for the first time ever, and I... I so... Everyone has their opinions on thermostats, especially if you're a cage person. A lot of cage and enclosure people, they don't use thermostats. They just do timers or lamps or whatever. But uh, if you're a rack person, the thermostat is a must, you know. Um, and I've always used Vivarium Electronics, VE. I like them. I think they're crisp. I think they're clean. They're uniform. They stack on top of each other. You can cable tie the wires together. Everything is nice and straight and uniform, and I like that. Um, I've only ever had one mess up with a VE product. And I don't even think it was the device's fault, so to speak. One time I uh, went up and checked one of the venomous racks, uh, a V70 rack from Sea Serpents and or CB70, whatever they call it. 
and I noticed all the animals were at the front of the tub, and I was like, oh, what happened? And I look, and the little LCD screen yep. was, was lit up, but it was just minus signs, like dashes, right? And I realized it's because the probe, the tape on the probe, the tape had deteriorated, and the mm -hmm. probe lifted off of it. And luckily, it wasn't that high. It was only like 100 degrees, but again, it, it was 100 degrees in the whole tub, so the animals just couldn't get away from yeah. it. Um, yeah, that's but, like people talk about putting the the probes down with that metal HVAC tape, which is fine and all. But if it's anywhere near that tape, it heats it up and loosens that glue, right? And then it just kind of pops off or something. Because I had the same thing happen. I ended up taking a zip tie and tying it, but then leaving plenty on the tail, like clipping that fairly high up so that it can't fall back in that hole. So even if it comes loose, it keeps it from falling out of the rack and things getting to triple digits because i had the same thing happen with that that rack i got from sean i hadn't secured the probe enough and i noticed the same thing all the chondros in that rack were hugging the front of those tubs so well it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal nothing died nothing got nothing regurgitated or anything but i it, it made me switch to this was a year or two ago and it made me switch to um i use clear like industrial strength packing tape Mm-hmm. And uh, and that seems to work really well. And what I do is once a year, maybe twice a year, I'll do like a full rack cleaning. We're like, because let's be real, we don't dust the shelves. Yeah, you know they, I mean? they get dusty quick. I know they get that. dusty quick. They, so it's amazing. I'll, I'll do that, and when I do that, I'll just replace the tape. And I actually, uh, 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 one of my coworkers got it's this weird staple gun, but the staples are very specific for tying cable to something, mm -hmm. and they're they're actually like conical or curved if you will they're mm -hmm. not they're not straight right and i think i might invest in one of those just to put one one little thing right at the base of where the probe yeah. turns into wire so that way even if it does peel off it won't it can't go anywhere and it's still a half an inch or a quarter of an inch off of the heat tape so to speak well they do but, have those little clips that you with the one screw like the clamps that then screw into whatever you're in yeah those, that's a good good option because I, I highly doubt those screws are going to be deep enough to go through the other side you know the other side yeah. of the rag yeah well so one of the things that i always wanted to do and I, I never did it just because i didn't really care that much was the night drop module and everyone always talks about the night drop module and i bought them and i installed them and they are awesome and i got it from uh reptile basics so when you buy it from them it actually comes with a timer so even though i didn't need the timer mm-hmm I used it for another, I used it for something else. I was like, oh, I don't have a timer on that. Let me, let me put a timer on that one too. So, uh, yeah, I can't speak highly enough about the products, even though there's some bad stuff on the internet. Shit happens. Yeah, made but by, they, they're saying made by humans. There's people that say the same thing about herb stats. I like, I if I have a choice between the two, I'm going to go with the herb stats just because I like the metal body. But yeah. Yeah. Both, Brandon says both he used, do the job. Yeah, exactly. Brand says he used the P clamps to screw and they work extremely well. So there you go. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, it's been 24 hours. Nothing's happened. So uh, I'm happy about that. Uh, other than that, I really don't have any reptile news to report for myself. What about you? Uh, so obviously on this channel, I did put out some videos this week. Uh, one on rhino rats, one on the Dion's. And I shot one on Baird's today, but I don't know if it's going to uh, get posted or not. Like I was saying in our in our little chat thing, for whatever reason, shooting like pre-recorded pre videos 
for me. I feel rushed. I like forget things that I wanted to cover. There's just for whatever reason, like pre pre-made videos, pre-shot videos, and then edited and stuff are very difficult for me to just be happy with. So for whatever, like I can do live stuff all day long. It's it's strange. You would think it would be the other way around, but like pre-recorded yeah, right. stuff is just I I don't know. It gets it gets annoying, and then I'm looking at it. And I'm like, is all the information that I actually talked about correct? Because uh, I I mean obviously I I want the information to be of course accurate and like that's the most important part so of course but i don't do you find that to be the case with the ve stuff the vev uh so yes and no so before i started doing the vev stuff um which by the way episode two is literally done i'm just putting the fine tweaks on it um i want to i want to make it longer but at the same time i'm like no i don't want to make it longer i'll just save that for another episode um but I'm a one, like not to toot my own horn, but I'm a one take guy. And what I usually am is, too. Right. And I think what I'll do is I'll do the one taker and I'll be like, wow, that was fantastic. And then I'll nitpick myself and I'll do like 25 more takes. And at the end of the day, I still use the first one. Right. So I think it also has a lot to do with uh, being self-conscious. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And however many times we say, um, or, uh, or, mm, you know, like I try to, focus on not saying those things and just pausing uh, because of the same, I just did it right there. But at the same time, <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, certain things you can edit out, certain things you can't. What, I, what I've been cheating with the VEs, the VEV stuff is, um, what I've been cheating with that is I'm doing the audio recording yeah, as a narrative, over. it's voiceover. So yeah. a lot of times I'll, like for the VE stuff, I'll write everything out in a note because i have multiple iphones from like i keep all my old phones right and that way i can do multiple camera angles if i want to or i can have one phone that has my notes or the ipad that has my notes and then i'm recording with the other phone or what have you and i'll write everything out i'll proofread that then i'll wait a couple days reread it to see if it sounds stupid and then i'll read that while i'm audio recording that way i can you know, time it correctly, and there's not a lot of ums, or there's not a lot of pauses, and that's less audio editing mm-hmm. I have to do after the fact. Uh, I had the same issue with, like, with the Rhino video. I originally shot it on my phone, and I was like, man, I'm really not happy with this. So I was like, Jake, because it was just before Thursday, it was Wednesday, and so that night I was like, let's record a, a Rhino video real quick before THP Thursday night. So we did that, and I wanted to break out the DSLR, and then I realized how poorly lit that whole video was, because <clears throat> uh, I have a panel light, but the the battery on that does not last long. Um, Which, by the way, I did I did it. I did see the Rhino video, and I thought that was great. I liked I like how Jake was kind of like going with you. I thought that was good. Yeah, well, it, it made me realize too that I need like that that Nikon's old, and you know, I'm looking at the sort of the graininess of it and stuff, and I'm like, good God, it's time for an upgrade. So at some point, hopefully, within the next year, I'll upgrade to one of the baseline sony mirrorless or something i don't know yet but yeah i that was another one i just i reshot it because i realized after i'd finished it the first time how much stuff i'd left out that i wanted to talk about and it was even like small stuff and what i did when me and jake re-recorded it was i i just on my phone i use the memo app on my phone all the time the little notepad app yeah um i just put quick bullet points like single word just to keep myself reminded of of what i was doing but keep it on track mm mm-hmm I like it. I'm actually, I have uh, some snippets from VEV episode two 
I was gonna try and throw one up. Give me, give me two seconds to see if this will work. I, I probably won't go with the A7 just because that's kind of overkill. I think I'm looking at probably like a A6000 or something, something sort of mid-range. Because also, uh, from the research I've done, is I can actually use that A6 or the A5100 as the camera for snakes and stogies too, which would be nice. But I mean, my phone also. I mean, I'm a Galaxy guy. This is a S20, and I mean, it does pretty well video-wise. I. I had mowed the lawn earlier, and so then I was, because that was a workout, uh, I got up, got the got the motivation to shoot the bear trap video after that, so I, after I got out of the shower, I did that, and it was one of those weird things where you're still wet because you hadn't dried off, and then you were sweaty, and so it was like this weird thing where you're not dry. It's the beer can effect. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so I'm like, I looked at the video at one point and I'm like, got just like sweating like crazy. And I'm like, what is wrong with me? Like, what? <laughs> it's like, why, 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 why am I, why am I sweating? Well, here I got one clip from episode two of Venomous Etiquette videos. I figured I'll throw that up. Just a teaser, share screen, share. Mike, I believe it. I don't know if this is going to play the audio or not. Hopefully it will. I don't think it does. All right. Let me unplug this real quick. Just narrate it like you're doing it. Doing it. <clears throat> no, nah, where's the fun in that? <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, here you go. One of my favorite hooks is the Midwest Tongs Professional Snake Hook. This hook is masterfully constructed out of aircraft-grade aluminum with an indomitable titanium U-shaped hook. It features a grip in the middle of the shaft for use with two hands, and at 45 inches long, it has saved my skin more times than I'd like to admit. That you guys hear it okay? Mm-hmm. Nice. So, I didn't know how the sound was going to come going speaker to microphone, you know? Give the people what they want, Phil. It's coming. It's coming soon. I notice at least once a year, I have this like month long period where I get on this this kick where I want to uh, shoot videos and stuff, and then I won't post another video for like a year. So, can you add Casey? I can. There he is. I have to get up out of my chair. Look at Casey's chair. Speaking of chairs, that looks like the one that the old man in the uh, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is sitting in. Right, yeah, like right. my uh, my old antique one. I've got Everybody my uh, classic globe. Yeah, man, you look like an aristocrat. <laughs> look like Annabelle. Yeah, I'm definitely not in the bathroom right now. That thing's haunting. I like that chair, and I like the globe. Is the globe an old world globe, or is it modern countries? You ask this every time it's up. No, it's not a modern <laughs> globe. It's got a. Uh, Sudan is still uh, just Sudan. I think it calls... Yep, it does. It calls uh, Russia the USSR. Excellent. So, so is Zimbabwe Rhodesia? Oh, I think it is. Because, again, you ask this every time I'm on. I don't, re- I don't look behind me. Uh, Videos do suck. And it has both. It has Zimbabwe and then Rhodesia in parentheses. Nice. So then what about, what about Namibia? Is it Sudwest Africa? Okay, well, first, it still calls uh, uh, West Papua, Erie, and Jaya. So. Excellent, excellent. So, what did you ask about? 
uh, is Namibia, Sudwest Africa. Um, it says uh, Namibia, and then there it's is. It's not pink; it's tan, Scott. A little bit. It's in parentheses again. So Sudwest Africa. What about Burma? Is it is it Burma, or is it Myanmar? It is. It's got to be Myanmar. It's Burma. Oh wait, no. Nice. Myanmar was the was the new is the new name. Myanmar is the new name. Yeah. All right, going back to Africa, is it the Democratic Republic of Congo or is it just Congo? It is with the gorillas and the squams. It is just the Congo. And does it have a little section on the bottom that says, "All right, we'll stop. Never mind." Cool globe, Casey. I, want, I want you to guess which year this was made in based on which countries are on this map and which aren't on this map. Honestly, I'm going to say it's probably between uh, probably 1980 to 1983. I have no way of knowing. So sure. It doesn't, it doesn't have like a, like a maker's <laughs> mark on the bottom. Oh, there might be like a, a treasure map or something underneath it. Casey's probably never looked. Yeah, right. Right. Is there a compass yeah. rose Pirates on the bottom? Caribbean-esque adventure. I do not see a, a date anywhere. Is there a compass rose in the bottom or no? Yeah, I'm not seeing a date on the compass, though. Oh, damn. Oh, let's see. Amateurs. Don't they know how to make a damn globe? Nope, I don't see any. Sorry about that. So now That's that right. we've discussed uh, geopolitics in the 80s. <laughs> right. And how countries' names change. Yeah. Um, well, who's showcase again? Yeah, so other than the videos, I uh, got a Chondra coming from Luke tomorrow. Nice. Um, what is it? It is actually one of his animals that was originally the sires from John Irby. And the dam is actually the dam to the two others that I have from him. So it's going to be pretty cool. You got um, pictures? Uh, well, you're not giving up on Chondras. I, I was afraid for a little while you are giving up on Chondras. No, I haven't given up. I'm just... I'm, content with what i have but this was part of like a sort of a deal that he and i and brahms had set up like two years ago so he he basically owed us quote-unquote condors so um picture wise i'm not sure but i'm i'm part of the the pituophis pals now nice yeah i think it's uh Crazy Train, maybe? No. I gotta look it up. And since Marcus is in the group chat, I will say, there's only one true Chondro, and that's Chondro Dynamos. No. no. But the Pituophis Train, I mean, it's it's hard to be friends with Chris Painjab and not get some kind of Pituophis. They just kind of show up at your house, nice. in my experience. Nice. This this came from an old employer, actually, local to me. Are you texting it to me or not? I'm I'm yeah, I'm trying to find it. I'm sorry. Okay. That's cool. It's I never realize how many pictures I load up on my phone until I have to look for one and then I'm like, oh my god. Nice, nice. So uh uh Casey, what's new with you this week? So um I've been working over at uh Justin Kabilka Reptiles. Oh cool. uh, starting last week. Oh, they had nice. to where their uh, usual rat guy um, got a got in an accident and really hurt his hand. So I've been filling in over there. Uh, okay, cool. Yesterday, 
I've got a little bit of experience with rodents, but now that I've been in a like a full scale industrial rodent farm, it's uh it's pretty eye opening. <laughs> and this is coming from a guy that like I'm not gonna lie, I've traditionally been like a little bit afraid of rodents. Like rats and mice kind of freak me out a little bit. Okay. So of course I get in a hobby that involves me having to touch mice and rats all the time, as you do. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it was uh it was super cool. But I got to see some uh, some kind of nasty stuff. So Dominic told yeah. me not to talk about it. So let's talk about it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine uh, uh, anybody who's kept rodents of any kind in mass quantities. There are certain scenarios where cannibalism becomes a factor. Um, oh, this is yeah. So cannibalism is a factor. The worst is when. So what they do is they have groups of uh, three adult females for about thirty to thirty-five baby uh, rats. Right. So the grossest one is one one of the moms dies and the babies just cannibalize up on the mom. So you find like a half half eaten mom. That'll happen. But we had a, an, an issue where uh, usually like the way they've got it set up with the watering system is top notch. But a watering system's going to mess up no matter what, especially when you have, you know, 300 different tubs. Right, right. So they had one where one of them must have been able to chew through the little bit of uh, exposed light. Yeah. And it just flooded that one tub. Oh, that's sad. And yeah, you, there, was, uh, there was rat soup that I had to uh, pull out and find a place to dump. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. That's, it's, it's sad to say it's like part of the job, but. What's up, Elijah? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's dirty, but it's also like I get to see a, a world class, literal world class, yeah, absolutely know, animal facility, and kind of help fill in over there, which is kind of cool. Yeah, very cool. And you're you're friends with Summer, so that's makes yeah. things easier, you know. So Summer wasn't there the last time. I think Summer does a lot of. Uh, she works there, but she also does a lot of. Um, like remote work where I think she's the one that edits the videos and like sets up all that kind of stuff. So a lot of that can be done like at her house on her set on her computer setup. Nice. That's cool. But yeah, I'm going back there, uh, you know, for a couple of weeks while this guy's hand is on the mend, something happened where his finger got crushed and they've actually had to fuse two of them together. Really? Or like just to save it. Yeah. Wow. Well, so, hopefully yeah, he, uh... Summer texted me. She's like, Hey, do you know anybody that can fill them with rats? And I'm like, I, I can try. Gotta do it. So I can yeah. jump in. Yeah. <laughs> Christian Parr says, just when I thought I would try breeding rodents. <laughs> I know, you so, know, I've said it before. I actually really enjoy it for whatever reason. It's I, I yeah, but it's fun, but it's also much small, small. Scale. You enjoy it because it's not at your house. It's a therapeutic Sunday morning thing. You go there, you have a cigar, you change some water bowls. You know, you uh, you know, package up some some uh, vacuum bags, and you're good to go. You're not dealing with fifty thousand rodents every single day. You know? I kind of wish I had them here, though. I'm not gonna lie. Oh, and let me say too, it doesn't really smell bad in there. Oh, yeah, you're crazy. Really like, ventilated and stuff. Like it's you're not crazy. That bad. No, no, no. Justin Kabilka's place has like top quality, like yeah. best money can buy airflow. And I highly like doubt he's he's going to skimp on that. You know, no well, I've been in some rat facilities for some people that are still around and some people that are not still around and shy of having air conditioning in a barn, a legit barn 
it's intense. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. seen, you know, some of the Florida breeders uh, that probably shouldn't name names because I'm saying it's kind of gross, but you go in there and it's just like the ammonia hits you right in yeah. the eye. Yeah. 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 And this place does not have that. I mean, there's thousands of live animals in there. So, of course, there's going to be some kind of smell. Right. But. Yeah, I'm in there. I'll be changing out the tubs and you know getting literal handfuls of rats. And there's a little, uh, a, an adorable little rat terrier that follows me around. And you ever wonder why a rat terrier is called a rat terrier? You need oh, yeah. To, uh, throw a, have a rodent fall on the ground in front of it, and it will murder the shit out of it. Oh, yeah. That'll happen. Where, like, this thing, and it, it, it eats them sometimes, but this thing just, like... It's an adorable little dog, super friendly, comes when you call him, but he's absolutely brutal to small rodents. All right, so I just got the chondro picks from Justin. So let me try and just go down the line here. All right. All right, what are we looking at here, sir? That is the animal in question. Nice. Yeah, that, that is an absolutely awesome animal. It's very uh, I like the head uh, stamp on a lot. emerald in its uh, hey, appearance. Hey, hey. <laughs> I like it. All right. Same yeah. animal, just different. Angle. Yeah, that's awesome. Mom and Dad. Whoa, that one on the right is amazing. Oh yeah, I really like the blue up in here. I, I'm I'm really falling in love with that just neon green with a high blue saddle. Mm -hmm. Like that's that's honestly cool. It like me. borders the uh, the diamonds. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. You get the little wings on the like the diamonds turned a little little hash marks almost. I like that a lot. Oh, look at that. That little black outline, like it wants to have an outline, but it's blue and black. That looks what? What locality is that? Or is that a? That's a design. It's a designer line. It's one from uh, John Irby. I really love that look. Very cool. Oh, look at the contrast. Yeah, That's awesome. so I, I have two two clutch mates from that female. She was bred to another uh, quote unquote Highland type. Um, which I think northern coast is probably a better term, but sure. Um, so they they look fairly similar to mom with that blue line and stuff. One of them is a lot more dramatic than the other one, but and, and just for the record, because I am ignorant to all this, this is these are both quote unquote designers. These are not any kind of specific. Um, right. So the the dam. Um, she actually has some Maxwell lineage in her from, I mean, pretty far down the line, but it's there. Uh, so she's not, I wouldn't say she's a locality specific, but. Okay. Um, yeah. So she comes from designer lines. I've, I've talked to Andy and I've tried to find, cause I like to hunt down lineage when I can. Of course. Um, and I tried to find pictures of, of the, grandparents on her side and i i can't hunt them down all, all the maxwell stuff is pretty much gone as far as photos and stuff yeah oh. all right very cool man i'm excited to see what that thing turns into yeah me too it looks a fantastic looking pairing 
Yeah. Yeah, Luke's been uh Luke's Luke's been doing really well with him. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. So I have that that should be arriving tomorrow. Uh and then I got the pit like I talked about, a little Florida pine. That's cool. She ate for the very first time yesterday. And that is a straight Florida pine that is not a cross of any kind. As yes, as from as far as I know, it's all Florida, which I thought was interesting because after doing some looking and stuff, like no one seems to want to bother with the Floridas. You know what it is? Is it's very much like, in my opinion, it's the same concept as like the San Francisco garters. Like it's not illegal to have them, but there's it's so gray area when crossing state lines that nobody even wants to mess with them. Um, and I feel like because they're protected in Florida now. Even Floridians don't want to mess with them because prior to 2020, you could have one per person per household. So you could have a pair, but if you bred them and you got five eggs, well, you better have five kids that live with you too. You know what I mean? I get it. Uh, so uh, I know a lot of guys in Florida, they wouldn't mess with them at all, or maybe they'd have one or two as pets, and that'd be about it. And because of that, I know a lot of Florida guys would um, do hybrids just so that they could just sell them willy-nilly, mm -hmm. you know? Um, well, I the guess, parents of this were captive bred, so there, you know, there wasn't any, right. any body snatching. Sure. But I just thought that was interesting, and maybe it's because they don't have the crazy contrast or the, you know, the really dark uh, yeah. coloration stuff of some of the other ones, but I don't know. It's it's cool. Yeah. Looks I like, like a little female. Nice. Excellent. Yeah, the, uh, that's definitely on my bucket list. Uh, I don't have a lot of bucket list snakes per se. I mean, I want to see them all, you know, but that is definitively on one of my, that is one on my bucket list. So, What are you, what are you smoking tonight? Tonight I am smoking a, well, right now I have a cigarette in my hand, but the Tabernacle in a Lancero. And this thing is exquisite. Well, I hope you get something before you smoke. No, I'm good. I'm good. I did a deep. I did a deep V on it. Well, let me get it right there. So you gotta be careful with the V cutter on those because you can get like those in Coronas because you can go too far with those Calibri Vs. Well, well what's funny is deep. I specifically took the time to examine this one. <clears throat> Excuse me. And this one had a really deep cap, so that's why I was I was confident yeah. doing the, the V cut. You can actually see the line coloration of the cap. See mm -hmm. it. So. I made sure that I got just enough to make it worth my while, but not enough that I'm going to destroy it. So, and what are you smoking? Romacraft Aquitaine. Awesome. We got the the cranium, which is just the Toro size, back in stock, and that's probably my favorite in this blend. Um, and the Cro-Magnon too, just the regular Toro is fantastic. The the Coronas are really good too, but I don't know for nine ninety five, it's it's a pretty hard cigar to beat. Yeah, man, hundred percent. I just wish I had him by me. You know, I find myself every time you give me any kind of Roma stuff, I just hang on to it until we do snakes <laughs> and stogies, or dare I say, I see you in person. You know, Punch Rare Corojo. I've had that. It's been a while. So what I was actually. What's that? Oh, never mind. Go ahead. No, what were we gonna say? I was going to say, we had a... <clears throat> oh, there's Graham. What's up, dude? Uh, we had someone 
who has been listening to the show, um, Noah Richardson, if I'm not mistaken, uh, was asking me some some questions about Boyga, and so we got on the topic of like the shows and stuff. And let's see, he wanted to know some cigar stuff. That's good because um, I actually have another topic on cigars. So once we talk about a little tobacco. I'm going to talk about some cutting implements. He said, it would be awesome if you and Phil did an in-depth episode on cigars and some of your favorites. I'm new to cigars, and I'd love to list on how to get into cigars and some simple ones um, for recommendations and um, how to distinguish the different notes. Yeah, let's dive into it. Casey's like, damn, why did I come on this show? Yeah. <laughs> The non-smoker is going to jump in on the on the cigar-heavy episode. Yeah, right. Where's your bubblegum cigarettes? Yeah, right. Start uh, smoking cigars, Casey. It's good for you. I will say this. Um, I'll start with this. For me, I'll. A lot of people don't want to read the recommended notes or what what the manufacturer says the notes are should be. Right. I don't really want people <clears throat> to read those. Uh, yeah, because. You'll be disappointed. You'll Confirmation bias. Right, exactly. 100%. Yeah. But I will say this. I will smoke, and then I'll get to the back third. And By the time I have the back third, I'll have determined what I perceive my notes to be. And then I'll read the, the, the show notes. Mm -hmm. and, you know what I mean? And I'll right. compare and contrast. Smoke it first, then, then read. Yeah. 100%. That really is Boyga Musk, you know, or whatever it is. Yeah, so, I mean, it's so the the thing I noticed the most working in the the dead leaf industry, yeah, um, is a lot of people are, I guess, scared is is the better best word I could think of. Apprehensive. They're, they're, they're apprehensive to smoke something dark. Yeah, like they're worried about something strong. They see the super dark like oscuros and the the super dark maduros, and they're they automatically jump to that being stronger, which for the most part, yes, a darker, a darker cigar will be, I won't necessarily say stronger, but definitely richer, uh, probably a little bolder. It's going to have a little more muscle to it. Uh, on the other hand, though, when you look at lighter cigars, you know, Connecticut's, which is going to be the, the tan, like the same color as my chair, that color leaf, um, a lot of those typically are going to be a little on the pepperier side, which so there's, you know, that's not a terribly popular thing for a lot of newer people too. They don't like super peppery or, or I won't even necessarily say spicy, but um, the pepperiness kind of turns people off too. And so not all Connecticut's are super peppery. Not all Maduro's are, are super strong. Right. That's the reason I like the Neanderthal so much is like, it's a Maduro. It's a San Andreas Maduro. Uh, and it's strong, but it's not like sharp. Like it's, it's just, it's right. just a muscly cigar. It's just, it's, it's bold. It's rich. It's full, you know, it's, but it's not, it's not a punch to the throat, you know? Yeah. Uh, the biggest thing too, if, if you're not is retrohaling, learning how to retrohale. So blowing the smoke out through your nose, it's a little hard. If you're a cigarette smoker, it's probably going to be a little easier, but it also might be muscle memory to inhale, which is really bad. Oh Yeah. Um, but retrohaling, you get so much more flavor out of the cigars because you're you're using so much more of your your taste buds and your olfactory uh, nerves and stuff. Um, so like this this Aquitaine, I really like this. This is Ecuadorian Habano. So Habanos typically are known to be 
that sort of spicier, pepperier variety that definitely has a little bit more going on, fairly complex. Um, the, uh, the Cro-Magnon is the same cigar, just with a different wrapper. So the, the filler and binder are the same. The Cro-Magnon is a uh, Connecticut Broadleaf Maduro, which is, so the way I compare them is, oh yeah, there we go. Um, Connecticut Broadleaf is more of a just silky, rich, kind of the same front to back. There's not a not a whole lot of complexity to it, but it's it's one dimensional, but not in a bad way. Like if you're looking for just a nice silky dark cigar, Connecticut Broadleaf is the way to go, especially with like a Liga Pravada Number no. Nine or the Cro Magnon. Uh, personally, I like a little bit more going on. That's why I like the T52s and the Liga Bravada stuff a little more, just because it's a Habano. It just it's a little more a little more colorful flavor wise. So <laughs> well, I just said Phil's going to hurt my feelings with the San uh, San Francisco gray area. <laughs> yeah, I put in there. I said I said that because I saw he was there. <laughs> That's why I chose that specific species. Uh, I got you. I actually was just trying to type to uh, Eli, and I ashed all over my keyboard. <laughs> nice. So that's that's what I get for for poking fun. So, but I will say this: just because we're on the topic of the color palette and the robustness of a smoke, yes, people will be apprehensive to smoke some of the darker stuff. But at the same time, like you're never going to know if you like it until you yeah, try it. Yeah. So one of the, I think the first cigar I ever smoked was a Habano that was Cuban because I was in the Bahamas and I bought real Cubans. I was 18 when I did that. And uh, and then I remember I came back to from the trip and I smoked a couple other things I don't remember, but I, I, I was enamored with the color and the look of the Onyx Reserve. And one of the first mm-hmm. ones I ever did was they have the Torbusto. It's a, it's a Robusto Torpedo. Yep. And that thing is black as night. Yeah, it's just those like, Onyx are about as dark as it can get. That's, and I remember smoking that and going, man, I really like this. And that was probably around the same time I realized mm-hmm. I like I like Guinness too. It was it kind of went hand in hand. You know, I like to chew my beverage. Um, so just because it is more, I don't want to say more powerful, I think that people should just try it. You know what I mean? And just give it a whirl. If you don't like it, you don't like it. Who cares? Yeah. There's, there's more out there, you know? Well, Maduro's, you can also expect sort of a very slight sweetness to it because it is fermented longer. That's what gives it that really dark color. Mm-hmm. Uh, which naturally is going to bring out some of the, the the sugars and stuff in that that leaf. Um, and when I say sweet, it's not going to be like obviously sweet. It's going to be very subtle. A lot of notes and stuff I find are, are fairly subtle, except for maybe the main handful. You know, pepper, leather. Um, some of them do have like a sort of a, a woodsy fire. Like Corojos in particular yeah. have a lot of that sort of woodsy smell. Earth tones. Yeah. Um, a lot of people, the notes and stuff that, that that they leave in reviews and stuff, a lot of people aren't going to pick those up, and that's why I think they're they're mostly bullshit. And I don't even know why they really bother putting them in there because everyone's palate's different, you know. Yeah. But if Casey smoked whatever we're smoking, he probably wouldn't taste yeah, the same I, things that we I, taste. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's like everyone's it's the same reason some people like Pepsi over Coke. You know, it's just it's all subjective. I also feel that just to go back to Justin talking about retro inhaling, um, it, there's also, I usually will puff out my smoke 
in a, a, one of a few different ways. Um, sometimes I'll let it linger out on its own. Sometimes I'll blow it out the side of my mouth. Sometimes, you know, I'll retro inhale just a hard push and just blow everything out of my nose. Um, you have different taste buds on different parts of your tongue, yeah, right? Yeah. And just because you have smoke in your mouth doesn't mean you're hitting the right taste buds. You do want to uh, chew on it a little bit, kind of. Yeah, exactly. It's um, just like, it's just, if you, if anyone's into wine, it's cigars are so much like wine. It's, it's almost eerie. Um, yeah. You know, you go to, you see wine tastings, people just sip it, spit it out. Yeah. Same thing with cigars. You're not inhaling. You're just tasting it. The different notes, different combinations of blends and then the different sizes and everything. So yeah. a lot like wine in that regard. Yeah. Uh, you know, you see those people using, you know, they'll, they'll get a nose on the glass of wine. Um, you know, they'll taste it and they do their little rating thing and whatever. Yeah. Spit cup. It's know. a lot like, yeah, it's a lot like wine. So you're just. just and, and, and I will, I will say this. We, we break people's chops about sniffing a cigar, uh, especially if you're in a humidor in a cigar store. Uh, it's very uh, uncouth. Uh, to put your put a cigar that's not legitimately yours up to your face, it's gross. You know, what I mean? it's, rubbing your upper lip on cigars in public yes, humidors. It's it's classless. Um, what I have done before is, uh, I if I know I'm buying it, like I know, like it's in my hand, I will crack the cellophane and I'll I'll take a little sniff of the cellophane because I love the smell of cigars. Uh, I will smell a cigar all the time, but. That's just because I like the smell of tobacco. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? I'm, you're not going to smell what's being burnt. Right. And it's that's that's why I laugh when I see all these, when I see you know guys do it at work all the time in the humidor. I see them on the camera doing it. And I'm like, yeah. you're in the humidor. You're not going to get anything from that. Exactly. Exactly. There let, me go, let me go to a flower shop and try and smell one flower. Right. It's not exactly. going to work. <laughs> so. Uh, Dylan uh, said, does the size impact the flavor? And it does. That actually plays a huge part in the flavors. So there's a filler to wrapper ratio. So you have three parts to a cigar as far as the leaves. You have filler, wrapper, and binder. Wrapper is the outside leaf that you see. That's where a majority of a cigar's flavor is going to come from. Uh, so when you get into like a standard Toro, um, it's a pretty even blend between the three tobaccos because they're usually different. So there, there's different combustion rates between the filler and the and the wrapper. Um, so the wrapper is going to burn faster than the filler will. So that's why you want to kind of take your time. And that's what happens when you get sort of the uh, spear point sort of deal. You're smoking it too fast. Um, so when you shrink that down and you get into like the Lancero like Phil has – that's so much more wrapper to filler and binder that you're getting a lot more of that wrapper flavor. Yeah. And so if you ever want to know sort of what a wrapper almost by itself tastes like, then a Lance Arrow is the way to go. Uh, a lot of cigars, when they're blended and when they're testing blends, trying to figure out what sticks and what doesn't, they usually smoke them in a Corona, which is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, I feel like that's kind of a very honest interpretation of what that blend was supposed to be. Even if they smoke it in, in Coronas and they end up making it in a 6 by 60 that Corona's probably what they were basing that blend off of, and they said this will probably work in the bigger sizes, I assume. I don't know. but um, Yeah, so when you get into the bigger gauges, you're getting more of that filler and less of that, that binder and wrapper. Um, 
I there's a couple like I don't usually go above a 60 ring gauge. I'm not big on 60 ring gauges to begin with. I'll smoke them. I don't have any issues with it. I just prefer to go thinner if I can. Um, I will also chime in just on the size thing, too, is, uh, you know, like Justin was saying, depending on the size allows for more of a particular type of tobacco. It's also in terms of how it's rolled. They may roll it differently. And now you're talking about how much airflow is in there, how mm-hmm. tight it is, and then that can affect your draw because I like a very loose draw. I like a lot well, of smoke. It's not supposed to be a chore. Yeah. Right, it's exactly. It's, it's no fun. If it's like a frozen milkshake, yes. you're to drink it through a straw. There's, there's nothing enjoyable about that. Right. So to me, the size is paramount. I don't, I don't like a really large ring gauge. I don't like a very small ring gauge. But that being said, I love the Liga Provada number nine so much that I will buy the little, you know, baby cigarillitos or whatever they call them, mm-hmm. the little tin. What, what's the proper pronunciation? Cigarillos. Cigarillos. Uh, I'll buy those in the tin because let's say I want to have a cigar, but I'm only doing like a 40-minute, 50-minute drive, and I don't have time to enjoy a full cigar. I don't want to leave it on my windshield when I go into a place or whatever. I'll have one of those. And despite it being as small as it is, the flavor is damn near uncanny. The mm-hmm. only difference though too, is I got to remind myself that I am smoking a much smaller cigar and my burn ratio is way hotter and I can't draw as much as I want to because I'm going to heat that thing up and it's going to, it's going to kill it for me. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. There's, there's so much more to it than people realize. And that's why I say the parallels to wine, they go even as far as like the, the crop itself. You know, different parts of the plant dictate different flavors. How the plants are grown dictates different flavors. What country it's coming from dictates different flavors. Yeah, Uh, nitrates in the soil, all that. Yeah, year to year even. You know, you can have one cigar that, that, you know, one box tastes phenomenal and you can get another box and it just tastes different, tastes off. Yeah. you know, I'm, it's it's a handmade product like premium cigars. That's that's sort of the issue right now with the FDA is trying to regulate premium cigars when they're trying to lump it in with Phillies and Dutch Masters and all the gas station garbage. Right. Uh, the difference being is that premium cigars at your dedicated cigar shop are going to be 100 percent hand rolled. No additives like the one ingredient is tobacco and then maybe some pectin for the cap. And that's it. There's nothing else added to it. There's not a million other chemicals going into it or nothing. It's just tobacco. And the fact that they're trying to lump it in with menthol cigarettes and all that other crap uh, is just is ridiculous. You know, they're, they're premium cigars do not belong in the same category as really any other tobacco because they're, they're just it's not the same. Yeah. The uh, I will say this, too, is I'm I'm very envious of the cigar smoker who is in their fifties or sixties because they have the ability to smoke uh, genuine Habano leaf from Cuba in its quote unquote heyday. Right. Mm-hmm. And now because of, I don't want to get political, but because of communism in Cuba, the crop trade is almost non-existent. The agricultural districts that do all the tobacco growing the soil has become almost stagnant it doesn't have as much nutrients as it used to have there isn't as much cross-pollination of, of, of plants as there used to be you know in the united states we we have seed banks uh, to the best of my knowledge they don't really have that down there so what a lot of the farmers are doing is they're smuggling in seed from 
Nicaragua and the Dominican Republic and stuff like that so that they can kind of keep things fresh. Mm-hmm. And the Cuban tobacco that's around now, Justin will confirm with me 100%, you'll get some that is phenomenal and you'll get some that's just garbage. And that's because they haven't had the ability to uh, uh, refresh everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, my biggest complaint with... with- Cubans like the tobacco itself is is fine. It tastes good. And is it everything it's cracked up to be? I don't think so. I think Nicaragua's putting out the best stuff in my opinion, but they also pr- produce mostly like the stronger stuff. Yeah. Um, but the Cuban stuff, just the rolls. When the, the you get a box of Cubans, it seems like, and about half of those will smoke like an absolute dream, and it'll be a fantastic cigar. And then the other half is going to be like that frozen milkshake effect and, and really frustrating. And there's a good, good example. So that they take a, a handful of that filler and bunch it up, wrap it in the binder, and then that gets wrapped in the wrapper. And that's it. That's, that's, that's what long premium, long filler cigars. That's, that's what it is right there. And I think that's a great photo for a multitude of reasons too, is that you, you're looking at essentially the three different colors and just because it's a light khaki color on the outside doesn't mean it's it's dark brown or chocolate brown on the inside yeah you know and that just because it's that dark color doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be this punch in the face so and dylan said time also plays a role in how fast you smoke which it does because the the whole idea with it is you don't want to burn the tobacco and i know that sounds kind of funny because you're literally setting it on fire but the, the point is to burn it as cool as possible to where it's still burning. I guess smoldering is probably a better word for it. Um, but you want it to be as cool as possible because you get more flavor that way. If you if you have it lit too hot and you're smoking it too fast, you're not really going to get much out of it. It's going to taste bitter. It's going to taste like charcoal more or less because you're literally just glassing the end of it. <clears throat> yeah, and that's... Uh, and then, yeah, so he, he smoked a Lancero and he said, you know, is that why it tasted stronger? And that is 100% why it tasted more potent because it is that filler wrapper ratio. You're, you're getting a lot more of that flavor from the outside leaf. Well, that was a pretty good picture, too. I can't even read what the bottom. Like so the essentially, the it's, it's, it's telling you the, the anatomy of the cigar. So we have mm-hmm. the foot over here, the burn line, obviously, the main body the head and the cap, right? So now if we look at the bottom picture, um, you have basically showing you the combustion sequence, right? So we have mm-hmm. combustion here, which is air is touching it, right? The main stream of smoke is being pulled in. So that's gonna pull in more air. You also have air being pulled in through the outside of the wrapper. Uh, and then you have condensation and filtration zone. So this is actually gonna limit the, the certain smoke that's coming out, which is going to give you different flavors and you know, be one way or another. Yeah, and depending on the blend too, I mean, you'll get some that change up flavors. Um, the perfect example of that is that, that leaf Sumatra, that leaf oh, by yeah. Oscar. That thing will start out uh, with a little bit of like white pepper. Yeah. And then once you get more towards the middle, sort of transitioned into like a citrusy sort of orange sort of flavor. And then once you get to that last third or so it changes up into like almost like a milk chocolate and like i said these notes are very very subtle yeah you know if if like it's not gonna be blatantly obvious like if you're smoking a a backwoods or something where it's like yeah that's a white russian flavored 
cigar. Right, right. Um, it's not genuine. It's, it's much, yeah, it's much more subtle. But if you're paying attention and you're really, and I find that to be a big thing too, like actually paying attention when you're smoking and paying attention to what flavors you're, you're getting out of it, you taste more. Like if you're just smoking while you're doing something else, it's just going to be a cigar. Like, and that's fine. That's, you know, that's whatever. If that's what you want it to be, that's what it is. Um, I just find that if you're actually paying attention to it when you're smoking it, it really, you get more out of it. Right. I also, I feel like certain notes people can't get. Like for example, to me, dark chocolate or milk chocolate, that's, I'm not going to, I'm not going to smell that. I'm not going to taste that. That's just the way that my taste buds are. I love milk chocolate. That's like one of my favorite things in the world. When I'm smoking a cigar, I do not smell that. I do not taste that. But white chocolate or white pepper, a hundred percent. I will, if there, if it says like notes of white chocolate, I will identify it. I may not know that that's what it is until I go, Oh, that's right. It is white, white mm-hmm. chocolate. Look at that. But everyone's different, man. So just because Casey says it tastes like Mountain Dew, it may taste like, you know, dog crap to me. Yeah. So, and interestingly um, enough, I find the cigars. So when, you know, before you light them, like we were talking about smelling the cigars earlier, the ones that smell like manure, yeah, are the ones that taste the best. I couldn't tell you why. I don't know what it is, but if I pick up a cigar and it smells really strong of manure, those are usually the ones that make me want to smoke them over and over and over again. And, and let's be frank, there is no cow poo on the cigar. Right. It just has that. It's the decomposition of the leaf and the the uh, I don't want to say chemicals. The the properties of the soil, the oils the, and stuff. Yeah. Right. Exactly. The properties of the soil, the oils that in which that plant was grown. Um, I got this picture here, which I thought was a pretty cool picture. Uh, in my oh, yeah. personal opinion, obviously, I mean, Justin knows a hell of a lot more about this than I do. But to me, the only reason why I would pick a different cap or a different head is the way I'm going to cut it because of the draw that I like. I mean, would you concur, Justin? Uh, yeah. I mean, torpedoes, you're typically going to notice those are going to be more expensive most of the time because that requires like their top rollers to, to do. Right. Uh, cause rolling cigars is an art form. If anybody tells you otherwise they're, they're liars. It's, yeah. it's not, everyone can do it. It is not nearly as simple as you think it is like the people they have rolling. Uh, and from what I've been told, some of the top rollers in Nicaragua and Dominican, you know, they'll make as much as doctors or lawyers do. You know, it's just one of those magic touch things. Um, torpedoes, I'm not as crazy about. I couldn't really tell you why. I just, I don't really go for them all that often. Perfectos, yeah. that's sort, that's similar. It's just the other end's tapered as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I typically just go with the sort of the traditional rounded cap. Yeah. You get the ones with a little pigtail, and that's meant to be so you can twist it off and you don't have to have a cutter. Um, I've only tried I, it a handful of times, and it doesn't. Yeah, to me it it just frays, and now I'm got little bits of leaf in my mouth. Mm-hmm. So, but let me ask you this: so, since we're on this topic, what are some of the what are some of your top picks? Let's go uh, top five picks for someone looking to not necessarily expand their horizons, but start looking at the horizon. Uh, so what I typically recommend to people who are kind of new to it is the Hoya de Nicaragua Antonio, Connecticut. Nice. Um, that's just a phenomenal Connecticut. It's not a peppery Connecticut. It's very creamy. It's very smooth. And then the Perdomo Habano, Connecticut, 
which I know I said Habanos typically are pepperier. This one, for whatever reason, isn't. It is a Connecticut. It is, again, another sort of creamy, silky smoke. Comes in a bunch of different sizes. That's a phenomenal. I'm not a big Perdomo guy either, but I do like that Habano Connecticut a lot. Um, what else? What was the... I can't remember the Connecticut that has the tree on it. That's that charter oak. That charter oak. So I and think those that's are a great. Great smoke for what was less than for ten bucks. Six, yeah, six bucks. It's phenomenal. Seven bucks, whatever. Yeah. Um, that is a little bit more of a peppery Connecticut. So I will say that. And the My Father Connecticut is awesome, but that is again sort of a smoker's Connecticut. That one is going to have a little bit more punch to it, a little bit more, a little more zing. So. Both of those are awesome. They're both great cigars. They're ones I also recommend a lot, um, especially the Charter Oak for the money. That's it. I was I was not expecting much when I first smoked that because I think we originally sold them for like five fifty or five ninety five, and I was like, "How good is this going to be?" You know, and that just like wine, the price has no bearing on if something's good or not. You know, if you right. see an expensive cigar, doesn't necessarily mean it's better than anything else in the humidor. Frankly, there's plenty of seven dollar cigars that I will smoke over a thirty dollar Padron. 11 times out of 10. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, another one that I like, I, I like to consider this the transition into the darker stick, the Ashton VSG, you know, and a lot of times people will gawk at the price cause they are a little more expensive than normal. They, are. they come in a wide assortment of, of ring sizes and lengths. But if you want to dabble in something that is a little more refined and you want to try something that's a little more darker cause you've been smoking, you know, one thing or another the entire time. I think that the, the VSG is a great gateway stick. Again, personal opinion. Um, but again, a lot of people might not agree with me because I like a lot of dark stuff. I like a lot of rich mm -hmm. stuff. So. Yeah, I mean, the Charter Oak comes in a Maduro as well. Um, what else? As far as Maduros go, I'll recommend the... La Imperiosa from Crown Heads. That's a fantastic smoke. Yep. Nice little complex Maduro as well. Uh, League of Nines, if you're willing to spend the extra extra coin, they're not, 100%. you know, the reduced, those are $13.50. So they are market average for cigars, hovers around $10 typically. Uh, you're going to have some that are more, have some that are less. Yeah, but I pay 16 that's, that's the top of the bell curve, is kind of that that $10 range. So yeah, they are a little more, but they are very good and they are very much worth the money. And I'm one of those people where if people are looking for stuff at work, I'm not going to give them something I don't think is worth the, the money. Right. You know? Yeah. I pay 1650 for a Toro, uh, league of number nine. And every single time I do it, I remind myself how worth it it is. So Casey, you hanging in there, bud? Yeah, I'm doing good. Uh, Anna Maria wants to know what you're drinking. I've got some uh, kombucha right now. I've been getting into that a little bit lately. Nice. You are so, an aristocrat. Hippie. I'm trying a couple different flavors. This one is coconut, pineapple, and turmeric. Dog piss. What? What? Sounds delicious. It's, uh, it's, it's okay. So I've got a friend that's like super granola that's trying to uh, get me into it a little bit. So I've been trying a couple different kinds. Uh, I think my favorite so far has been one with uh, ginger and pineapple in it. That sounds good. It tastes a little bit more like a, like a sour beer. Like it's got the same exact aftertaste. It's like a really good sour beer. Sure. But they've got like next to no alcohol in them. So it's something like, I don't know, I can go off and drink 
a few of them and not feel like shit. Yeah. Nice. But yeah, I, I, haven't, been, I gotta, haven't been brave enough to try that stuff. It's. I've heard it's, 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 it's an acquired, acquired taste. taste. Yeah. Like the first time I tried it, I was took a sip and I was like, I don't know if I like this. <laughs> like I'm like I'm forty percent sure I don't like this, but then like. There's like it's got the after it's got a very similar aftertaste to like. <laughs> Tom said most people are in Georgia are drinking toilet moonshine. Casey's got that bathtub kombucha. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take my chances with the moonshine, honestly. I do love the, some shine. At least the alcohol will kill any bacteria or anything. Yep, I do love me some shine. I was actually I was gonna buy my own little still. There was a company online that sells like little baby stills for like your porch. And when I was shopping to order it for myself, I came across a thread that apparently like six months into them selling it, the state of Florida passed a, 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 an amendment to the uh, uh, like a brewer's law where there's no distilling of grain alcohol s- privately in the state of Florida. You have to have a distiller's license. So that company had to, buy back like 400 oh yeah i remember that and buy them back from other people otherwise they were gonna, all those people are gonna get in trouble so i'm i still contemplate it but maybe when i don't live where i live put it in a grill or something hide it yeah right so the area i'm out at um you know i'm out in the middle of the woods right now next to river what what so part is it out, what? what part of georgia uh, I'm in uh, Cleveland, Georgia, right now. So no, but like where's, where's off, the like, other? Right what's the, the other county that you uh, either were you born there? Or did you, you used to live there? No, no, I. What, uh, was, what was the name of that county, Casey? No, no, I grew up in Forsyth County, Georgia, which has a a, a questionable history at best. No, but there was another county. It starts with a C. What was that one? Maybe he's, talking, he's talking about oh, no, no, the town in Forsyth that I grew up in is Cumming, Georgia. C U M M I N G. I did that for Dom. Yeah, I Casey live in lives Georgia, in according in to uh, Dominique. Georgia. <laughs> Dom's on fire tonight. But yeah, no, you walk out in the woods sometimes, and you'll start seeing like little piles of jars, and like. You know, random buckets and stuff like that in the middle. Redneck Blair Witch. Like, yeah, the early. I know it's old stills. So you got stills that like are clearly from like the 30s and 40s. Like right, you see like paint cans from World War II. So it's probably like they're drinking shine laced with some good old lead paint. (laughs) Delicious, right? (laughs) Which honestly, like if you've been around this part of Georgia, having uh, the the amount like. The idea that some of these people had grandparents that were drinking uh, lead paint laced moonshine, it, it makes sense. It, it makes a lot yeah. of sense. I can imagine. What's funny is uh, a couple of Herper buddies and I, we go bird hunting out on this one WMA that's smack dab in the middle of the Everglades. And uh, it's actually a, a cattle ranch that the family that owns the ranch they have so much land that they lease it out to the state of Florida to make it a WMA. Um, and we, we do a bunch of bird hunting down there and we'll basically walk the cow fields looking for snipe and dove. And twice we found these glass, small ring, old school shine jugs, mm-hmm. like, like legit glass jugs. And they're covered in dirt and they have soil inside them. And 
I wish I knew how old they were. We, we've kept a couple of them. I gave my dad a couple just because he loves that old vintage Americana. But I would love to know how the hell that jug got there and what was in that jug. Like, was it cow milk or was it moonshine? No, no, that they're the, making shine out there, 100%. But there's no, there's no buildings. There's no nothing. Like, you'd think there'd be like a, a, a shack or something where they cook the stuff. No, it's literally an abandoned cow field with like a handful of cattle walking around. Well, I mean, you got to think, too. You're in Florida, so if there was like a little plywood shack in like – 1935 the humidity is just going to eat that up in no time yeah i guess you're right yeah you got a point but yeah i mean you're out there herping where i'm at and you'll find the coolest one i found though was a little glass jar that had a had a small crack in it so some moss grew in the bottom so it was like this cool little terrarium thing i kept it that's awesome yeah <laughs> i found a jar with a severed head in it it was awesome <laughs> there were some fingers in it floating around in some sort of liquid I mean, speaking of illegal things out in the cow pasture, if you uh, happen to uh, see some little mushrooms growing out of the cow patties and you rip them up into blue, uh, I, I know people that would uh, pay money for those. That's, uh, that's very interesting. What's funny is I'm looking for the picture of that jug, and I think I have it here because in that same cow field where we found those jugs, there happens to be some small little white capped mushrooms. And when you roll them over, you hold your breath and pray you don't breathe in spores. And they happen to be a fluorescent blue underneath. Um, like I said, I, I know some people that would uh, pay for those mushrooms. So, uh, yeah, honestly, uh, we, we leave them alone. I, I don't want to get, I don't want to go anywhere near those mushrooms, to be brutally honest. <laughs> so, trying to find the, the picture of them because I actually I took mean, a really like good you, one. What you need to do is you need to get a burlap sack so the spores kind of spread out along the field as you walk along. And nice. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah, we're not. They're from nature, that. man. Okay, it's not illegal if it's from nature. <laughs> Ah, okay. Spoken like a true kombucha drinker. Yeah, <laughs> tell it to your congressman. <laughs> Fight the power cannon. <laughs> How did we get on this tangent? I I don't know. We're talking about illegal stuff in cow pastures, and I'm just it's it's the obvious path. Clearly. How's that how's that Angolan doing? Yeah, let's hear about that. Yeah, I uh, I fed her a chick not too long ago. Maybe the next day after the last one we uh, talked about. So, another cool. Thing I thought it was a male. Right now. No, she's a girl. Oh, okay. But another cool thing about working over at JKR's place, if uh, a rat jumps out and the dog gets it, I've asked like, "Hey, can I just keep these?" So every every day after this, I'm gonna have like a little bag of. The rats that tried to survive and just didn't. All right. Waste not, want not. Yeah, exactly. So that's that's kind of what I'm going to be feeding <laughs> the little little Angolans and stuff from now on. I worry about you, Cannon. <laughs> right. Y'all are out there talking about cigars and stuff like that. I just got to sit around here and... Feed your Angolans some feed my Angolans dog-chewed rats. My, my weird... Fermented tea. 
Yeah, I don't know. I thought you had a, a male for some reason because I was going to tell you Terry Burwell posted some females for sale not that long ago on Morph Market. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't mind building up my group. I'm actually uh, I'm getting some ball pythons uh, this week. So. Oh yeah, you and Billy. Yeah, me and your... me and Billy have been talking about ball python stuff for a while. So. You're not gonna put a ball we to lost that angle, are you? I'm not. No, 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 no. Oh, no. thank God. No. Oh, thank God. No, Angola. Look, man, I, they're practically the same thing. You shut your whore mouth, sir. <laughs> Look, man, I love hybrids. I think hybrids are awesome, but that Angola needs to keep it. Stay to an Angola. Like, Good. I, no. But uh, somebody in the comments, yeah, Stephen. Yeah, he said there's a lot of uh, Angolans on Morph Market right now. I think this is like the season they start to hatch. Mm -hmm. Like you see little influxes of like rare-ish species like that where uh, maybe a month and a half ago it was olive pythons where there's like no olive pythons and then like three people had their clutches fall at one time. Yeah. And yeah I noticed that with uh, some king snakes recently. It's a bunch of, a bunch of cow king morphs all of a sudden. And then before that it was a bunch of chain king morphs or chain king types, you know. Yeah, you're going to start seeing it with brettles pretty soon. So it's like stuff that's not super available, but like enough people work at it that, you know, we're all going to be getting our clutches ready to go at the same time. Yeah. So that's what's going on with Angolans right now. Nice. And uh, Casey, you need to send me a picture of that one spotted. Yeah, that was that was Terry as well, uh, Brandon. He said someone just posted clutch of roughs today. Terry ha uh, released some some rough scales. So. And Wait, uh, you said uh, spotted? What, uh, what do I have you're, spotted? You're, you're spotted that you just hashed out. Oh, the brettles? Yeah. The stone wash stuff? Yeah. Yeah, send, yeah. Me, send me a bit of that picture. Are you ruining markets again, Casey? <laughs> he does it we, so well. We, we talked about that. And, you know, uh, we can't talk about this. In, in per I'm not crashing any brettles python markets with my very few clutches a year. Uh, Steve Poole wants to know how the pumpkin king what snake. I heard. <laughs> Steve Poole wants to know how the pumpkin <laughs> king snake is. <laughs> Anna Maria, my love, if you're still listening, text me a picture so I can show Steve Poole. Ugh, I'm gonna throw up. Look, man, don't be jealous of our king snakes. Okay, Bill, I sent you two pictures. Uh, on text are or you, Facebook? Text message. Are you okay. going to breed balls to brettles? Balls to brettles? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. Do it. And then you just call them balls. Bread balls. Bread, oh, bread balls. That's adorable. Bread balls. <laughs> That's adorable. You know what cracks me up as far as hybrids go is we had Rob on last week, and he, you know, he works at Nerd, as we all know, and, you know, the place for interesting hybrids. And he's like, I hate hybrids. I can't stand it. <laughs> like, you're in the wrong building, man. Right. You're in the wrong place. Oh. Damn. Oh, it just went from six to midnight. Look at those animals. Yeah. So Oof. those are full-blooded hypobrettles pythons. It's so uh, wild that that, that top, darker one is. That's still a hypo. I know. Still a hypo. The lighter one on the bottom is a hypo stonewash. So the stone wash, it works like a, a low-level pied and a low-level hypo. But when you add it on top of the hypo, you get these, like, insane orange washed-out, like, gorgeous hmm. snakes. It's a so, shame that the blue on the face doesn't stay. Yeah. I mean, 
I like the fact they go through the color change and all that kind of stuff, but yeah, there is like some little like little things the babies have, especially on the white parts that I kind of wish they'd be able to hold on to a little bit. And uh, Brandon Valentine asked about the Timor pythons. They are living at Billy Hunt's house right now because I feel like Timors are a, an animal. Well, Lesser Sunda. We're going to call them Lesser Sunda yes, pythons. Yes, so. I was about to correct everyone and say that we're going away from Timor and we're trying to use the correct name of the Lesser Sunda python. Yeah. The Timor pythons do not live on Timor. They live on the Lesser Sunda islands. But uh, Billy's room is a little bit more of the, like ambient python room like the 80 like constant 78 82 degrees and the people that work a lot with timor say that's kind of what they need versus my room where i'm used to the more uh the stuff that needs more of a seasonal shift so they're just really the right guy for that project and i'm not so i'm more than happy to make sure that they go to somebody like him yeah man Dude, I can't get Everything over Billy touches is gold. Turns to gold. I mean, the guy nailed it with Maclox pythons, which actually live on Timor. So that is true. Very true. So yeah, I figure if there's anybody in like my friend group or you know, whatever that could breed Timor pythons, gotta send it to him, you know? Yeah. Yeah, they do kind of look like Ridley Eye with the blue heads. But yeah, they haven't even had their first sheds yet. Like wow, that's a really? fresh, fresh clutch. I hatched out some hypo stonewash that were half hypo, half LASIK in 2017. But uh, yeah, these are the first time I've ever done like full-blooded hypo to full-blooded hypo that were both head stonewash. So super excited about those guys. I have not sexed them yet either, so I don't actually know what my ratio is. Slacking. Yeah, and I'm, well. I'm wondering, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm wondering if Marcus is still in the chat. Uh, I hope he doesn't get mad that I'm going to share this photo, but he just got a pair of babies that, you know, I never was a huge fan of them, but dude, I see these babies and these pictures just don't do it justice. It just legit slaps you in the face when you see it. Ba-boom. Whoa. Oh. Yeah. So this is Cortalis Marulus, the Tamaluyapan, I always say that wrong, Tamaluyapan rock rattlesnake. Tamulipan. Tamulipan. Like the head pattern on those. That's just a fancy alterna. <laughs> Spicy alterna. Spicy alterna. So it's crazy because you can see it barely has one button. And, yeah. uh, and, so this snake is approximately, I don't even know how to measure, I guess it's like three inches long. It's a baby, baby, baby. And he's got a pair. Yeah, and it's not a big species, right? Yeah, they, they're fairly small as adults. I mean, under usually around two foot. But, dude, these things are just smoking. I, I forgot to get a picture of the male. This is the female. And uh, I'm so proud that he got these things, man, because uh, awesome. Awesome yeah, those creatures. look awesome as an adults. They're really yeah. cool looking. What are you feeding those as uh, when they're that small? So, as from what I gather, the gentleman that bred them already had them on a pinky head. So, okay. yeah, basically frozen thought pinky, cut the head off, put the bloody end, let them sniff it, and then flap, they just grab onto it. 
So I don't know how painstaking that was. I mean, I've done that with eyelash vipers and it took fucking weeks, but it works. Um, yeah. Same thing with baby death adders too. I mean, Scott's here, he can tell you. But, but yeah, that's what he did. So. Wow. That's something that's small. It almost seems like they would naturally eat insects in the wild. You know, you'd think, and I, I know for a fact that there's a bunch of small echis species, especially the Asian echis, that have been known to eat uh, crickets and grasshoppers and stuff like that. And I've actually had sucrechiae, and I've fed them crickets, um, but it's not enough to keep them going. Yeah, it, there's not a whole lot to them. Yeah, it basically, like, they'll eat a cricket or a baby locust uh, just to keep them alive until they can find a small lizard or another snake or whatever. Yeah, it's like the famous pictures of the copperheads eating the cicadas. Even though I imagine a cicada yeah. is a lot more meaty than a little cricket would be. Yeah, you expect the adult cicada? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, being from that that part of Mexico, too, I'd imagine there's there's plenty of lizards and stuff Yeah, roaming around. Small lizards. Probably eating coleonics. <laughs> Probably. Probably eating baby coleonics. Or baby abronia. <laughs> yeah. So here's a picture of the pumpkin king for Steve Poole. So Anna Maria named her Autumn. I think it's a very fitting name. And uh, she's on her third meal and already on fuzzies. So life is good. Should have named it pumpkin spice. Opportunity missed. I wanted to, but... Uh, That's why you get another one. It was too basic. Well, I want to catch an appropriately sized standard Florida and then raise them at the same time. So that way I can, you know, maybe play matchmaker in the future. So we'll see what happens. Yes. Lampro Peltis. Did I ever tell you this, the story of how I remember that scientific name? I don't think so. Yeah. I think you did. Did with the bar stool. Yeah. Okay. Should we tell it again or no? Sure. So uh, when I was first getting into, really getting into snakes, uh, I was, you know, one of my late men, my, my late mentor, I should say, not one of my late mentor, was very, very big on taxonomy and scientific names. And he basically burned it in my mind that you need to know this stuff. And to this day, I still am the same way. And I would do everything in my power to memorize every snake that I could. Um, and I, I had the old TFH, I still have the old TFH pocket atlas of snakes. And the entire book was a picture, a scientific name, and then a little key as to what it, like, did it lay eggs? Did it eat rodents? Did it eat lizards? Whatever. What was it? Venomous? Whatever. And I would go through and I would flip through and try and memorize it. And I was at the bar with my friend Zach, who was teaching me Venomous back in the day. And Zach and I were getting a little silly at the bar. It was actually a pool hall, and we were standing around a pool table. We were playing pool. We'd have a beer, play pool, have a beer, whatever. And I was like, dude, what's the what's the genus of kings and milks again? And he's like, Lampropeltus. I was like, oh, man, I can never remember that. He goes, look, I'll make it simple. He goes, lamp, and he points at the those triple lamps that are hanging above the pool table, the billiards table. And uh, he points, he goes, lamp, pro, because you're a pro. Peltis and he grabs the bar stool and rips the leather cover off the bar stool and holds up and goes, See, pelt, it's a peltis. And I was like, Oh my god, we got to pay the bill and get the hell out of here. So, for forever, <laughs> I will never forget the scientific name Lampropeltis. 
to Zach. <laughs> I like to imagine it actually like took him a minute too. So there was like a good like twenty minute pause. We're trying well, to figure out how to get this thing off. No, he, well, because it was it's an old bar stool. There was kind of like a a rip in it, and he just starts pulling. And I'm like, what are you? I'm like, what are you doing, man? What are you? We're gonna get kicked out. He's like, no, 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 Lamb Pro Peltus. And I was like, oh, waiter, you know. <laughs> Check please. Check please. So. So what? Uh, it looks like Scott's in the in the chat right now. He is 100. percent wanting to ask some Australians some questions about blue tongue skinks because I've been having some conversation with this lately. Why is it when it comes to breeding blue tongues, we give them a, a North American colubrid style cooldown, like no warm up during the day like you do with a python? Because think about it like this: Easter blue tongues and uh, diamond pythons from more or less the same area. Eastern blue tongues go a little bit further south. And in the U.S., everybody tells you, okay, what you got to do is you just got to put them in the garage, let them get cold, let them get to like 60 Fahrenheit, which I think is like, what, 12 Celsius, and just keep them there for three to four months. Where if you did that with diamond pythons long term, which are from the same area, have you know have to have similar uh, hot and cold adaptations, they wouldn't do well with that. You know, why do we give these guys the cold uh, brumation and these guys, they need the whole day-night cycle? Yeah, it's interesting. And no one in the North America that breeds blue tongues does a hot spot during the day. Yeah, they don't Brandon, allow the no, animal really. to pass. Brandon also. said it. Sen Scott the link. All right. If Scott's free. But also, I have noticed that when it comes to blue tongues, especially like anything other than northerns, you've got people that are successful for like three, maybe four years, and then it just stops. And you hear that with Easterns, too, where you have guys like, oh, yeah, yeah, back in uh, 2005, I had a litter of 15. And then every year after that, I've had like three babies. Mm. And I'm kind of wondering if maybe we need to be treating them more like diamond pythons, where it's like, they get maybe four hours of warm up during the day. Yeah, I imagine so. You know. Yeah, and you know we've got guys here that used to be pretty successful breeding alpines, which are from more of the, you know, more of the colder regions. You know, they overlap with easterns a little bit in the lowland areas, but same thing. You've got guys that are like, "Hey, I was super successful with these in like 2012, and I've gone two years without." anything now the ones that are the 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 herpetoculturists that are breeding them in australia are they getting standard litters every season me too but you know they also i think scott just said they keep them outside so i mean there's guys that do indoor and outdoor in australia kind of like what you do with north american colubrids here sure but <clears throat> yeah, that's, that's, that's it, what i've been wondering about these like the non-northern australian blue tongues is should we be giving them really cold nights and then like a couple hours to warm up during the day? Because it doesn't seem like Australia gets quite the the hard winter we do here. Like even in South Florida, right? You get days where it's like the high never goes above 40 for like a few weeks in the wintertime, right? Or am I wrong about South Florida in that? Anyway, we get that in the South here. So in South Florida, like I would say 
so it's difficult and, and, and forgive me for being the long explanation, but in South Florida, the coast, because that's where the populace is, is always 10 degrees warmer than the inland areas. So if it is February and it's say 72 degrees on the beach, right? It'll be 60 in the glades. Um, but at the same time, if it's 85 during the day in February on the beach, it's 72 in the glades or 76 great, in the glades. great sandal hunting weather for the beach. Yeah. So, <laughs> so in that regard, we do get cold spikes where it'll be 32 degrees in the glade. I've been in the glades, deep glades where it was 32 degrees at 4 a.m. But by the time it was 10 a.m., it was back up to 55, 56. You know what I mean? So there's always going to be that warm up with the sun. I mean, don't get me wrong. We have overcast days and stuff. But during the colder months, it's the dry season. You know, when I go bird hunting, uh, I'll walk, you know, riverbeds that or, or, or uh, flag ponds, cypress flag ponds, right? And you can see all the all the dead nepenthes or the the the, the I don't want to call them dead because they're probably not dead, but yeah, you know what I'm saying. Saracenia, excuse me. You'll see all the all the the dead Saracenia, and the the the, the ground is not clay; it's not mud anymore. It's it's almost like rock. And then come June, it's three feet of water because the rainy season came. So I don't know if I had blue tongues. I imagine that I would want to do at least for two to three hours a day, bring up that spike. Let them get a little warm, not to a full, you know, 85 degrees, but if you're keeping them at, at, at 40 degrees Fahrenheit and you brought them back up to 60 and they could get under that lamp for a little bit and only for a couple hours, if that, and then bring them back down, I think that would be more than adequate. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm wondering because it doesn't seem like, I don't know, it, it just seems strange to me that we have animals like I know, let's see what Scott's saying for us before we say this. Sure. Read it so the people listening to the audio okay, know. Scott's saying there's three problems with what's been said. So Australia has a longitude from negative 44 to negative 16. Right. So to assume temperatures and humidity parameters for a location is about as variable as a carpet python color pattern. So he's kind of saying that you can't just assume that the True. weather is yeah, going to be completely consistent. But yeah. I also know that at least some of our eastern uh bloodlines one of them actually comes from uh we know it comes from sydney because the way this animal came into the uk is there was a shipment of pipes that went from sydney to the united kingdom and the founder female was stowed away like it wasn't by reptile smuggler she was brought in from the wild via just hiding away in pipes just a hitchhiker what to do with her yeah Interesting. Very interesting. And see, it's interesting to see what Scott says about, you know, uh, latitude and longitude, because the majority of where I go herping is based around the 26th parallel. So you imagine climate would be similar, but it's not because of curvature of the earth and times of the year and, you know, uh, wind patterns and all that jazz. So it's, it's tough, man. I would say, if you had enough specimen to try it, take one of your females that you know locked up and try the temp spike. See what it does. 
Yeah. So they, they breed in the springtime though. At least these guys do. Okay. So it's kind of it's very colubrid like, but what I'm being told is, hey, the best way to breed these guys is you put them in the garage and just make sure they're at like, you know, fifty to sixty Fahrenheit all the time for like somewhere between two and four months. So I don't know. I'm just I'm wondering why why that's different, I guess. So I have animals that are clearly you know, they're clearly the New South Wales ones, and then some that are more Queensland esh ish looking. I don't really know. You know, I was told yeah. that they're Brisbane esque, which you can go on iNaturalist and see things that look like this, but then see things that look completely different too. So who knows? How would that yeah. compare to the Poplin ones? I mean, obviously those ones aren't gonna have quite the cooldown. And northerns don't really need to cool down either. Northerns kind of have a typical they're they're more like a ball python, you know, mm -hmm. where a cool down, you drop them to like normal human room temperature. And Scott's still talking, so let's see what he's saying. So he says, many Easterns are from the UK. Uh, the Melanistic is Sydney, and two of the albino lines are from Sydney. So Sydney is a mild winter overnight, 4 to 10, which is like 40 Fahrenheit to like 56. And the day is 12 to 16, which I want to say is a little less than 70, maybe around 70 Fahrenheit. Yeah. Which is kind of what I'm thinking is like there's Australia warms up during the day in the wintertime, at least for a little mm -hmm. while. From what I've seen, you know, from my short time there and from looking on AccuWeather. Sounds like it, how it is here in South, like coastal South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. Like, I don't know where they'd be getting. Like you're wearing a hoodie in the morning and then by noon you're like, sweating i just don't know where they're getting these consistent cold temperatures i'm being told to keep them at like i don't think that's something that they have an, an opportunity to get in the wild but maybe they do in like south victoria maybe and it's hard man because even though you have a phenotype that is indicative of a particular locality that doesn't mean that it, it the bloodline it hails from that part of the world you know yeah I mean, you look at them, the Eastern, at least from what I can see, the Eastern's from maybe like, we're, we're going to throw out like a random, uh, we'll say like Port Moresby or something like that. Okay. They seem to kind of have a consistent look. They've got the dark eye band. They've got the darker skin. They're a little bit smaller. Then you go north of that, and then they start kind of getting way more variable, where honestly, some of them look exactly like the Erie and Jaya blue tongue skinks, right. because the Erie and Jaya blue tongue skinks are just... Easterns that got stuck on Papua. I don't care what anyone says. They're the okay. same thing. Okay. But yeah, no, there's like a consistent look and there's like a line where you have a consistent Southern look and then the, like the more variable uh, Northern look of the Easterns. And then you have the classic Eastern look. And Scott's tan more. So, Talking about Brisbane. Yeah, Scott's up in Brisbane saying it's 2 to 12 in the wintertime. And sixteen twenty-five during the day. So again, you get kind of like cold nights and more warm days. And then the summertime, fifteen twenty-seven, twenty-seven forty, which is like it's a big pretty swing. Much a really hot Florida summer day. Yeah, that really seems to be the biggest difference between Australia and the South is that our winters are a little bit more consistently cold. 
but the summer times here really kind of seem to add up to exactly what you know spring and summer spring summer autumn in australia is basically the same it's kind of what it seems to be i was trying to find a picture of my car's thermometer in february and i happened to find the jug picture so there's that glass jug oh the stories that that thing could tell nice jugs yeah yeah i, I don't know man I, I would say try to do the spike you know and part of me wants to be like well what's the worst thing that could happen spike it like a volleyball Go that far. Scott yeah, said whatever. Melbourne, Adelaide, roughly five degrees cooler than Sydney. It's Adelaide, 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 Gatelaide. All right, Phil, I just sent you. So, so today is 14, de 14 days past post winter, 30 degrees overnight, low of 17. Man, I really got to get on my whole Celsius conversion thing because I get I so like eighty-two and yeah, around about like a yeah, little bit warmer than room temperature, maybe a little, maybe a little bit colder than room temperature. Forties, a hundred, right? Yeah, yeah, more or less. Yeah, so then you're looking at 80, 90 ish. See, that's the thing about the metric system. Like, if only they can get on our level system for measuring distances and liquids all that stuff i think fahrenheit's superior for like normal earth Just temperatures meet yeah. in the middle and do everything in kelvin problem solved <laughs> no one I, I didn't get them yet casey i sent it through a messenger in oh okay i still struggle to get wrap my head around the concept of christmas habits for them in the summer yeah right that still weirds me out that just feels wrong <laughs> I'm 40 just... Celsius is 104, according to Stephen Poole. Okay, cool. Excellent. Thanks, Steve. The uh, I'm still can crazy that the friggin' toilet spins the opposite direction. I think it's uh... is one episode of the Twilight Zone. Everything's weird. Everything's bad. Yeah, if you walk upside down, I can... You said you sent them on Messenger, Casey? Yeah, I sent them through uh, Instagram Messenger. Oh, Instagram? You can't. I won't be able to pull it up. <laughs> Details, Cannon. No, no, yeah. I told them. I sent them to you. Where? No, on my said, phone. Yeah, from where? Said, on Messenger. Where? I don't yeah. see them. Ah. <laughs> uh. uh. Don so, yeah. said, canned wine is the best invention of the 21st century. I feel like there's sommeliers rolling in their grave. Yeah, 100%. Did you get it, Phil? On, on Instagram? Yeah. No, I can't open Instagram on this thing. Oh, well, you gotta send it, yeah, you got to send it on Facebook or text message. See, the, the ghost from the, the old chair is already possessing and corrupting his mind. It was a 90-year-old woman who smoked Virginia Slims two-pack <laughs> a day, and yep. now she's, her, her dementia is infecting 
I don't remember Casey's anything. mine. Well, I've been watching that globe all night, making sure it isn't spinning on its own. Right. And, uh, like... Uh, Scott said, we keep our Kimberleys, Darwin, Northerns, Easterns, Alpines, Shinglebacks all outside, all are out basking and feeding. Personally, I would keep them inside with a cool night and a basking spot through winter for six hours per day and UV exposure. Diet is massively important in tequila. 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 In the tequila. All right, now I sent it through through text message field. Did you get that? Well, it seems like Cannon plays the same game that that the Crawdaddy plays. Of like, let's see if they'll eat X today and give them like baby back ribs from Chili's. Like, yeah, well, <laughs> I do like to play that once in a while. Of, do you guys want to eat this? I got leftover Man. fried shrimp from Popeyes. Let's see if they'll eat those. They do love shrimp. I believe and it. Weirdly enough, though, there's it's more surprising to me what they don't like to eat. Like I've thrown some earthworms in there, and like one in five will eat them. The rest they, of them are just. But like, they love Little Caesars. Yeah, like weird stuff like that. <laughs> Never so. pizza. I'm sure they would eat pizza. <laughs> now maybe see, they yeah. have like a little bit higher taste than uh, Little Caesars. Maybe they prefer like the really greasy Pizza Hut pizza. Yeah. Right. I think so, they might be more Papa John's. I got the text message to my phone, Casey, but it hasn't shown up on the computer yet. <laughs> oh, God. So. You'd think we know what we're doing here, 90, 90 episodes deep. Scott's saying that pair, uh, pair compatibility is probably the most important thing with Taliqua stuff. So, Isn't that the most important thing for all of us? I guess. Yeah. Yeah, my issues, uh, my issues with skinks last year was I had one male I really wanted to put to everything, and he was just he couldn't figure it out. The worst, the saddest part was when I was watching him and he missed. So he'd like he did everything right. He like fought the girl down. She like lifted her tail up for him, and he just prematurely did his thing. Happens to the best of us, but the curse of coming Georgia. Scott said snails are the blue tongue's favorite food, which I was actually going to ask if you had ever tried snails with them because I feel like that's something they would be all about. I have never tried snails, but I would be open to trying it. There we that's go. Finally. Though. Those are kind of the, the two general looks bitch, I have in skin. Bitch, right they now. like crab legs. They probably do love crab legs. I don't but see the one on top is the more uh, typical, like, we'll call it the form of an Eastern. And then the one on the bottom. I like the orange blotches is, on the side. Yeah. The one on the bottom, that's one of like many looks you see kind of above, uh, like around the Brisbane area and above. And then you have some really different looks uh, up in like the way far north Queensland where you start getting these like charcoal looking things. But if I look at that animal down there and I've seen pictures of people posting up, uh, uh, Erie and Jaya's, they can look just like that, which is why I think that Erie and Jaya blue tongue skinks are just Easterns that are stuck on the bottom part of Papua New Guinea. 
So now, looking at these two animals, the one on the top has the eye blotch, the one on the bottom does not? Yes. Okay. Different, different yeah, species that's entirely. That's like one of the biggest hills for like the, we'll call it like the southern form of the easterns. Right. And there's different, like, they look more or less all like that. There's a few different, like, sub-looks in there. You have, like, more of a gold background instead of a gray background. You have green phases. But. Scott says the bottom one looks like a hybrid. You monster. Hey, it, it, I mean, it wouldn't shock me if it was, you know? I don't know. I just, I was told it was a Queensland type. And I've seen the parents, so. I don't know. I'll get crucified by the skink people in the States later, but. You're ruining them. Oh, yeah. Skink people do not like hybrids. Impure. Fornicator. Adulterer. Right? Like, hang me by the neck. Scott said he's had the uh, multifaciata rip the jaw off the lone male, which is crazy. Yes, they're all they're all calm and dachshund like, and then they're just limb ripping savages. Well, dude, I'll tell you, when Casey and I went to Manny Duran's place, dude, his blue tongues were savages trying to get us. You know, <laughs> it's almost like a, a, a his were mostly northerns though, and the northern, okay. you know, well, depending on the line, northerns are a little bit more feisty, and they're also a lot bigger. Easterns are like half the size of a northern. The northerners must be from New York. Right? <laughs> but then like, like what they call the Marukis. The Marukis are like like two thirds the size of a tegu. They're just humongous. Yeah. Yeah, man, I'll never forget that guy Zach I was telling you about with the Thank with you, the Scott. Yeah, thanks, Scott, man. Appreciate it. Uh, that guy, Zach, I was talking about at the bar school, he had a Maruki that he bought as a import pet, and it dropped like six babies. <clears throat> bloop, bloop, bloop. Yeah, that's... That's pretty... Like, I really like the look of the Maruki ones. I just haven't gotten any yet. I've got Key Islands, and the Key Islands are really pretty looking. But... I don't know. I didn't really think about doing Marukis until we went to uh, Tiki's Geckos that one yeah. time. And I got to see what an adult actually looks like. Because I thought I had seen an adult before. And then when we got to see Manny's stuff, I was like, oh, what I thought was an adult was like half grown. Because those uh -huh. were tegus. Those were, yeah. that was an orange and black tegu. Yeah, man. I do. I like them more than tegus. I just said it out loud. How dare you? I know. Well, skinks also aren't getting banned in every freaking state that even hears about them. So That is true. That is true. Oh, man. So that's kind of one of those things I'm a little... We need to be thankful that Florida Fish and Wildlife has not heard about blue tongue skinks because, honestly, they probably could survive in a solid chunk of... Shut up, Casey. South and middle Florida. Yeah. Just... Ask a carpet python. <laughs> Stop, it. Stop it, dude. Casey, what are you doing? <laughs> Shut up, man! Come on, you're killing me here. Ugh. Okay, to to the all the th the Florida fish and wildlife people that listen to snakes and stogies, you'd be surprised, man. You would be surprised. We got ears everywhere. It's not even that, man. People talk, you know. 
one thing snowballs to another. So Casey ain't nothing but trouble, man. <laughs> I'm sorry. I try I try to be good and I fail. So it's funny is I'm, I was actually I'm re- I was renewing my license permit stuff today and uh, it make you list all the different species, right? And this is the most different species I've kept like ever. And I wound up scribbling out the entire section and just put please see attachment. And that made me feel like that made me feel good about it. I don't know why. So will someone please tell Casey that emeralds are not better than chondros? Ooh, I'll tell him that. Emeralds are not better than chondros. Yeah. The first expensive snake I ever bought was a baby emerald. And it was already eating. And it was captive bred. And it was adorable. And it didn't have a mean bone in its body. And I I could play with it, but I didn't because I didn't want to stress it out. And it lasted for... I would do one feeding every other week. And I got five feedings in. And it gurged. And then two weeks later, I fed it again, and it kept it down. And two weeks later, again, I fed it, and it gurged and died. I mean, I've I've had that happen too. But I've never seen one poop its guts out. Okay, that doesn't happen that often. It happens enough that there's a whole Q and A section of most green tree groups of what do I do when my green tree python prolapses? It's easily fixable. Your regurge problem isn't. I mean, this is true. This is true. You got a bag of bag of sugar in your house? Sweet. Make a mix it with some water and get a Q-tip and it'll go right back in. Might take a little while, but but it can be chronic. It makes you wonder if it's I've had it happen diet. in mine, but I haven't. I, I've had it happen in my prolapse before. Yeah. It freaked me out the first time I saw it. I haven't had any issues since. I still have the one animal that, that did it. Still rocking and rolling. Haven't had a problem since. It really makes you wonder, though, if it's the rodent diet. You know? Yeah, I wonder. I don't I, know if it's rodent or if it's maybe we're feeding them too big of meals or maybe they're just not hydrated enough. I think it's a water thing. I mean, that's hydration. My, my, that's my theory. Not necessarily, but the water, uh, like what kind of water you're using. Yeah. Cause when so, I had it, I was, I was dealing with, uh, distilled. And I think that distilled water was, and this is completely anecdotal. There's, I have no factual basis behind this. Yeah, but you, fed the snake, you fed the snake distilled water. I didn't feed it distilled water. It was getting distilled water because that's what I had at the time, just laying around. I wanted to use it like an oh, idiot. Um, yeah. And so I think that because that distilled water is is literally just H2O, there's nothing else in it. There's no minerals. There's no salts. There's none of that. I think right. it, it, it sucked out some of those from that, that tissue in that area. Yeah. Like, because it, it went from a, a saturated area to an unsaturated area. Right. And it caused things to just maybe shrink or things to get sticky. There just wasn't things to help move bowels. Right. I don't, I don't, I don't know. That's just my hunch. Cause I, I had, I'd never had that issue before that. And I never had that issue after that. Well, I'm pretty sure if humans that 
drink in excess levels of distilled water, they also get bowel issues. So that would make sense. Yeah, it's horrible, dude. Like yeah. we shouldn't even be drinking distilled water. Distilled yeah. water is so bad. You know, in small amounts, sure, but like large copious amounts, it's not good because I think same thing. It just it takes all those minerals and stuff that you would normally get from purified or spring water. And I think because it's going from a saturated section, a your like your body, those tissues, your muscles and stuff, and it's it's just absorbs those because now you're going into an unsaturated uh molecule or, or area of molecules and so i i don't know that's just my hunch but yeah well on a lighter note uh johnny barrett says that he was rocking my nefris initiative shirt at the anaheim show and got lots of compliments so thank nice. you very much johnny we really appreciate that bud my brother-in-law swears that during the jacksonville wisconsin game or green bay game yesterday he saw someone on tv with a thp shirt on and i messaged jake and said are you really jake, jake went and i said jake are you did you wear a thp shirt thinking maybe it was him uh and he's like no so i don't know wow. i didn't see it there's no proof but my brother-in-law swears up and down that it was one of our shirts so if anybody saw I mean, it you could probably find a recording of the game pretty easily you just have to go like with a fine tooth comb trying to figure yeah. out this person. Yeah. Uh, Andy Milton says emeralds are so tricky in that regard. It sucks that a lot of people's first experiences are similar to mine. He says, I think it's a water quality and rodent thing. And then he also follows up with, I was raising up five babies in Iraq and I was giving them tap water and three of them prolapsed. One of them died and I switched to spring water and haven't had any prolapses since. I also raise the temps a little bit. And yeah. he was referring to baby green trees, FYI. Yeah, when that when that one that I had, uh, Jesus, did I just have a stroke? Um, when that one baby prolapsed that I got uh, after fixing it, I, I took it off food for at least two weeks just to let those tissues kind of resettle where they're supposed to and um I haven't had an issue since like i said and it wasn't even i wasn't even feeding oddly large meals or anything like that like it was still the standard pinkies at the time i wasn't really pushing it you know sometimes i get to a point with chondras where i feel like i, I do give them a, a slightly larger meal than i they probably should have but it's just to kind of give them a little sort of a bump because i notice they they get to a point where they kind of just coast and don't really grow much um so I, I don't know. I mean, I, like I said, I haven't had a prolapse since. And yeah. I, I really do think water has something to do with it. Like the, the Well, I mean, I've noticed that I've been trying to, uh, let, me, let me be frank. Because I keep a lot of African species, I am not the best with water quality. And what will happen is I will let the bowls dry out just to simulate the dryness of it. And... It helps me regulate humidity and stuff like that. But then I forget that there's so many minerals and chlorine and fluoride and all this other crap in tap water that there's sediment encrusted. Yeah, on you the bowl. hard water stains. Yeah, exactly. So I've mm -hmm. actually been switching to black ceramic water bowls on a lot of like baby glubers and stuff. That way I can see that if it dried out and I see there's like the white crust. I know to make sure to clean that out appropriately and get rid of that because if I'm adding water to it, I'm just doubling that mineral content, doubling that fluoride content or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So I, 
I've been meaning to switch to like a spring water. Dude, just do what I do and get one of those water filters. Yeah, that's what I have to do. I like Luke Myers turned me on to that and I've been using that ever since. I used it with dart frogs and never had an issue. Like wow. tadpoles, okay. dart frogs, they did fine. I just got I'll send you a picture of it. I did a review on it in the magazine many issues back, but No, I remember the one. Yeah, I originally had one of like just the pure ones with the handle, like a pitcher. Yeah, this that one's gets like a quick. this one's like a reservoir. Right. And I don't have to fill it up nearly as much, but that thing's been I've been at that thing's been rocking and rolling since. I mean, you have to change the, the filters regularly, but it comes with a little sticker and you put the, the sticker on the month that you've you've added a new filter and it kind of tells you when you should expect to, to replace it. But for fifteen yeah. bucks for the filters, I mean you, and each one comes with a coupon too for the like the three packs. So Yeah. Well in the past for a lot of the um a lot of the arboreal stuff with Dramercerous and stuff, mm-hmm. um, I've gotten a dechlorinizer from fish store for a fish tank and i've added that to a large jug of water with the lid off mm-hmm. and even though there's some is evaporating that chemical additive allows that chloramine or whatever to evaporate yeah. and i've actually noticed a considerable reduction in hard water spots in the glass and stuff because i've done that mm-hmm. but now i really don't have any arboreal stuff and i got lazy and back to tap water yeah, I mean that's I don't even know how how decent my tap water is here. Like it doesn't I don't notice any obvious chlorine smell to it or anything like that, but I put it through that filter anyways just cuz I'm sure if there's anything that there's probably too much of that filter will catch, you know, right. at least a decent chunk of that, so. Like my my tap water has that city water taste and like I don't mm-hmm. mind it. I don't really care. Um but I know that there's there's stuff in there, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, and I just think about it in terms of like, especially baby snakes. Like you're looking at at kidneys uh, that are just tiny, and livers, and you know those yeah. filtration organs that are that are necessary. Like when you're dealing with baby chondros and stuff, that stuff really matters. Especially I think with the distilled thing, and that's that's what it was. Like this one wasn't fresh out of the egg when it had the prolapse. It it was still a hatchling though, and so I mean when you're talking about an animal that small, you got to think of how tiny those organs are. I mean at that point, you literally are looking at like at the molecular level sure those effects being so much greater because that's such a smaller animal and it's a smaller i won't say surface area but it's a you know the, the whole process is, is just so minuscule and shrunk down that that stuff really would make a difference in smaller snakes with bigger ones i guess it wouldn't be as as bad but still even an adult rat snake or something you're, you're looking at pretty small organs in comparison to, to a lot of other living things um yeah I don't know what Casey's thoughts are on, on that, if he's had any experiences similar. I don't know. I was going to say, I know Florida's water is famously super hard because there's so much limestone in your soil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know Florida is just, it's got to be rough on the animals. And like you said, I've had it where uh, water dries out. It's not as bad. I'm on well water right now, so I can kind of see. Yeah, my parents uh, have well water. Yeah, I'm on some, I can see more hard water stains right now than I did over my parents' house, but... Yeah, I don't know. I am a little afraid, though, with bottled water, where maybe it's less likely, but there are a lot of dissolved plastics in bottled water, which, again, that can kind of accumulate on stuff, but maybe that's mm-hmm. less important than, like, you know, the hard calcium and chlorine deposits yeah. you get on, you know, water with a ton of limestone in it. Sure, sure. And I know, like for like in the city, like the urban populace of South Florida, 
they're not using springs. They're basically pulling from Lake Okeechobee. That's going to get filtered, and then it's going to get recycled. So the average person who has lived in South Florida in the Tri-County area, so Palm Beach, Broward, and Dade, if they've drank tap water for over 10 years, it's guaranteed they have drank the urine of seven other humans. <laughs> That's like a statistical fact. So just because they just – they sewage treatment plant basically has a massive filtration system, and that gets added right back to the standard tap water. I mean, we've all drank dinosaur pee if you think about it. You know, yeah, the water on Earth hasn't gone anywhere, so you can't yeah. really be freaked out by that as long as it's purified. I just know that, like, again, Florida's water quality might not be the definitely not might not be the highest. I mean, you're better than Flint, Michigan, but <laughs> touche. Well, Johnny Barrett said people get sick from drinking only distilled water. Makes sense; it affects reptiles the same. Water is the universal dissolver, and without it, life wouldn't be possible to on uh, at the microbial level. And then he said it breaks the bonds of minerals, allowing them to bond with other chemicals making reactions that give you certain compounds that would be impossible without it take everything out of the water equals a dead cell yeah yeah and I, that's i'm struggling to read that because it's kind of a couple feet away from me but i think i got it yeah you got it yeah, yeah that's, that's kind of minerals in your water but that's another aspect of it that i think kind of gets overlooked just like photo periods yeah you know, i think photo periods are way more important than people are then it's alluded to um and water quality i think is the same thing but i don't know yeah i definitely the, uh, noticed more movement with a with a day and night cycle you know my stuff that i got light bulbs mm -hmm. on it i think it there's a clear there's a clear inactive state in like the middle of the day and then you go out in the middle of the night and there's yeah. everything moving so yeah i don't yeah. know since i've switched stuff over to having day and night cycles there's definite differences in oh i think about it even in terms of us like imagine you're yeah, putting yourself in a in a completely blacked out room or a room that's lit constantly and you have to sleep and like you have no context of what's going on outside of that room like it's a casino be, yeah it's yes yeah, yeah it's or strip club it's uh it's gonna be disorienting you know yeah i actually uh i wasn't gonna put lights on the serastes um, but the rack is fully LED backlit. So I said, you know what? If they were living in the deserts of Egypt, it would be really bright during the day. So screw it. And I gave them Blinded. a solid. I did, yeah, honestly, I did a solid. It, it's on a timer now. It's a solid eight hours straight white LED light. And for the first day, I didn't notice anything different. And now they actually will get closer to the light and sit right in the light with their pupils or literally non-existent little hair slits, but they're just chilling in there. And then at night they're moving around, they're doing mm -hmm. their thing. So the photo oh, I, I talked about a couple, couple episodes back that like that, that mater veterinary book I have talks about like snakes produce melatonin. So circadian rhythm yeah. is necessary. Like they, they do, you know, they need that. Yeah. I'm at the point now where I just unplug or turn off the, all the power strips in my room at night. Like everything gets shut off and then everything gets turned on in the morning. It just naturally cools them down a little bit. And yeah, 
completely pitch black in that room at night. So. I'm a forgetful jerk, so I have to use timers and VE stats. So now that I got those night drop module, like those things are going to be, I'm excited because my I have geckos in my bedroom, and I know that my bedroom gets to be 70, if not 69, some nights. In winter, it'll even get colder. And I'm wondering is now that I have night drop module on that rack, if I'll even need to quote unquote cool it, because if the thing's just turning off at 8 p.m. by mm-hmm. 9 p.m. it'll be room temp and if it drops into the 60s it drops into the 60s yeah. you know what i mean so yeah that's I, I mean i kind of room going to be cold or you know no matter what your room is going to be a little bit colder in winter time than it is in the summertime right right yeah i just i like having like forcing myself to have to go and turn everything on and and sort of visually look at everything cuz i I'd, I'd be the same way if i had timers and stuff I'd be like yeah we're good yeah. yeah. See, I, I, I get forgetful. I'm like, I'll leave a lamp on. I'll be like, oh, I'll turn that off in 10 minutes. And I walk out and I don't go back in there for the rest of the night. And then like a day later, I'm like, oh, my God, I left the light on. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it, was a, it was moon cycle, right? Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. I've always preferred to have it on timers, too, because then I you can actually be careful with it. Yeah. Because I'm like you. I will get lazy. And sometimes I'll forget to turn the lights on or forget to turn them off or the day gets away from you in the middle of winter. And it's like, Oh, I haven't turned the lights off and it's 1030. So yeah, yeah exactly. Stuff where I like to have the, the seasonal shifts where, you know, my animals right now, they're, you know, some of the bridles with the lights, they have them on from like eight to nine 30 or so. So 13 and a half hours. And then when yeah. the winter time comes along, what I'll do is I'll turn it down. So it's a seven and a half to eight and a half to eight and a half hour uh, day cycle. So there's a clear difference between right. wintertime and summertime. Right. Now, let me ask you, because you have, I mean, obviously your animals are all kept the break because they're Australian in that regard. Do you guys take on the mantra that the, even though the temperatures may be different, they still know it's supposed to be summer. They still know it's supposed to be winter. And therefore, or do you force that light cycle upon them? No, they uh they definitely know when it's winter time here no matter what season it is right you know, they adapt to it just the way a, a any living thing would sure especially ones that were born in the states i mean right now right uh i don't know how many generations some of these guys are they're probably set six seven generations born in the states so right. they're definitely on that rhythm right now as a matter of fact you can once you know when a female is going to lay eggs you can pretty much set your watch to it by about eight days because she's going to consistently lay eggs at the same time. Dustin, send me a link to those plugs that you're using. I'm curious. Yeah. See, and that's, that's something I've, 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 I don't want to say struggled with, but been very aware of it with all the import stuff that I have. Like some of the stuff I have is long-term captain now, but it took them a solid year or two to really get their bearings because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter what time of the year it is here. It matters where they were caught. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if I have something that's South African, that's Southern Hemisphere, and it was wild caught in December, and all of a sudden I bring it here, it's like, whoa, what, 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 why is it cold? You know? Mm-hmm. That's going to throw them all off. Yeah, yeah, I've thought about that with wild and import stuff too. Yeah. That's what I say with an import female. If you get an adult or a sub-adult female, it may take them like four years. 
to mm-hmm. adjust to this cycle. Right. And it makes sense because growing follicles is not a one. It's more like a two year cycle. So you start out with the small follicles and they grow up and then eventually, you know, usually in pythons you introduce when they're like 10, 15 millimeters, they turn into ovulation size at like 40 millimeters. So okay. yeah, whenever you switch the, uh, the whole cycle over, it may take a year for her body to get used to it. Yeah. And then two years after that for the follicles to catch up to her body being used to it. That's yeah. why I wonder, like, with northern emeralds and stuff, if that's maybe why people struggle to get wild-caught stuff to breed. And even some chondros, a lot of chondro guys will tell you, you know, if you if you get an adult female, um, be it an import or, you know, you get it from somebody else, it, it probably need to give it a year or so to fully adjust to the new everything, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the issue with northern emeralds is uh, I think northern emeralds get a disease i don't know if it's uh avian chlamydia canonitis common one yeah canonitis avian chlamydia is the most common one what i've heard is that the uh people the import stations hubs whatever it is will just take the dead parrots and feed the emeralds those just Mm -hmm. uh you know waste not want not Mm -hmm. and if an emerald gets avian chlamydia it's just going to start to puke Mm -hmm. but I hear that story, but I also kind of doubt it because that I kind of doubt that the people that work at the, you know, Suriname, Guyana flesh markets really care to feed the animals. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think there's a definite disease to it that causes regurgitation. I don't know if it's for every case, but you also hear where you'll have guys that uh, they'll have a perfectly fine well-established collection of emeralds and they bring in that one bad import and all of a sudden three quarters of the baby or three quarters of the adults have been fine for years all start to puke and they all crash so it's like my initial thought was maybe it's like a gut flora thing like one particular bacterium or something dominates everything else and throws things off but I'm sure someone's tried probiotics and seeing if that's helped. And, you know, I think I want to say Harlan maybe, maybe has, but. I've heard rumors people sense. have been able to treat it and make it, make it work, but I don't know. I, uh. Throw some ivermectin in there. <laughs> ivermectin fixes everything. Dude, it does. Coconut oil. Ivermectin against like mites and stuff. You want to talk about nuking? Some mm-hmm. damn tiny arachnids. My god. It's like Agent Orange for those things. And I know uh I don't know if Frontline works on there are certain species that you can just not use Frontline or anything. Like Provengemite and Frontline are both really bad for certain species. I think I've heard Bolens Keeper say there's some mite treatments that will just straight up kill a Bolens Python. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like Emeralds are the same way. They're very sensitive to certain chemicals. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I usually, when I'm treating with Frontline anyways, because of how, like, oily it is, I go pretty light on it, and I don't even really treat the snake itself anymore. I just I spray the paper towel, like, just hold it, one light spray on one side, flip it, one light spray on the other, let it dry out some, and that seems to work fine for me. I don't, I don't treat the snake or anything like that, that that seems to knock out anything that might be there pretty well for me. 
and I know uh, Dominique and I have talked about this a couple times with any, you know, with Condros, but I think it applies to Emeralds too. Just, I don't think adults handle being moved well. I just yeah straight yeah hundred yeah, percent. Yeah, like if you're buying an adult, you're taking a huge risk of just that animal. Just stress will just kill it. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. And I think it's a case of like if you're going to be like literally set that animal up and ignore it for minimum of like a month. You know, obviously water changes and stuff. Yeah, do nothing but, but water just changes. Just leave it alone, you know, it's it, and I think that that also plays a part in why some condors in order to get any sort of breeding action out of them if they're imports and stuff is they need that that year or so to you know, settle. And maybe more than a year. If you're buying an maybe, adult yeah. that was captured from the wild, you're switching her to a completely different continent. You're stressing her out to like no mm-hmm. end. It may take three years. It may take four years. Yeah. And you have to keep her alive in that period too, which is, you know, in a high stress environment, that's kind of hard. It's, it's hard for anything, but it seems like these species that are natural ambush predators, like emeralds and and green trees, they just, they don't handle being, they don't handle a move well. Well, you think about sort of how they operate, especially green trees in particular. You know, they have their tree. At night, they go down, anchor themselves around that tree, and then wait for food. And then sun comes up, they go back up that same tree, perch, and then night comes, and they do the all, do, you know, do it all again. So when you're taking it from, you know, either a lone tree or a group of trees, and all of a sudden it's in a tub somewhere you know, complete opposite side of the world. Like, yeah, that's, that's probably going to throw things off a, a pretty yeah. good. And even Jet getting stuff from other people's collections, like crap, like true captive born and bred chondros. Mm-hmm. I've heard of multiple people buying, uh, you know, adults and it just crashes for them. You know, they're like, well, the animal is fine for so-and-so for four years. And then I sent it over to my buddy and then it just died. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got that, that chondro from Phelan. Yeah, snake was rocking and rolling for years. I got it, and for whatever reason, just didn't crash. Yeah, it went down, and I I still feel so bad about that man. Yeah, that Marcus and I, one. Marcus, I've seen a lot with the curdle tails because you're definitively taking an animal that is always on high alert because everything wants to try and eat it. You know, it's <clears throat> excuse me, it's the perfect size prey item for everything: snakes, bigger lizards, birds. And now you're taking something that's definitively Southern Hemisphere. You've wild caught it. You've brought it to the Northern Northern Hemisphere in a temperate climate, for lack of a better word. And its clock, its photo period, its everything is just upside down. So like on the Rhodesianus, it took me five years to breed them. Well, like four, four and a half years to breed them. But the question is, was that me dialing it in? Or was it them just needing the time to acclimate, mm-hmm. or was it both? I mean, I like to think it was both. But well, you just think about the change in pressure and stuff like that, too. Yeah. I mean, altitude, uh, yeah. elevation, all that stuff, man. Yeah, and just because it says, oh, this is this locality, well, that locality may have, you know, a range of elevation, like you said, from, you know, 100 feet to 5,000 feet, you know, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. You know, just South Africa and Colorado are two very different places. Hundred <laughs> percent, exactly. Which is funny because uh, on the Mozambicensis, Marcus and I had a very large group of Mozambicensis, and we had very bad luck with them. And I, I lost several females, uh, adult females, and 
we wound up giving them to Marcus's friend in Colorado, who's in the Denver area. And he's produced like 25 litters ever since. Wow. So maybe it, maybe it was, maybe it needed the elevation. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Cause I'm at zero. I'm at sea level. So, so I know when uh, Steven Tillis went to Togo, <clears throat> yeah, he brought back, uh, you know, a massive and a massive female from, uh, area right off the Zia River uh, in the Volta region, mm -hmm. and so you got a whole a uh, what am I trying to say here? You got a case where you have a guy who was there when it was collected, knows everything about the import process for a species that is so dialed in in captivity that a ten year old can breed them, right? And he definitely has you know full uh, full capability of breeding ball pythons at his place because he's got dozens of them if not hundreds of them he's also steve freaking tillis so yeah he's yeah. also steve freaking tillis percent. <laughs> it took four years for that massive female to breed because it took that long for it you know she it took her four years to adjust had he yeah. tried though in that that time in between um i mean i'm sure he tried one year or so yeah we have to remember too this is somebody that like knows how to ultrasound ball pythons so there's a whole mm. different thing where yeah i'm sure uh, yeah, he maybe he didn't growing. notice notice ovulation or you know follicle development or anything like that yeah but, i'm pretty i'm pretty sure i just missed an ovulation with a uh, girdle tail i watched her i watch her three four times a day this one female and she was sitting out on a rock like this just swelled up and i was like i should throw a male in I don't have time. I got to go work. And I didn't. And the next day, shrank back it. down. Missed it. So. No, but this one, he's bred them twice now. Yeah. In that project. The, the locality ball python project. But I don't know. It took four years of being kept in pretty much perfectly dialed in ball python breeding conditions. And, and not even ball python. Specific that locality ball python. Because knowing him. You know he took notes when he was there. You know? Yeah, right. Yeah. So I don't know. Again, he bought he brought in an adult female, knowing the entire process because he bought the animal while he was in that village, and it still took her four years to adjust to where she could actually lay eggs. And and here's the thing too is he doesn't necessarily know how old that female was or how many clutches she's dropped before. Yeah. So it could oh, have well, been that size could be twenty five easy. Exactly. Exactly. Especially coming from an area where they revere that species and they admire and respect and adorn that species. So the likelihood of them uh, killing them or messing with them or treating them improperly is, is very, very minimal. Yeah. And I mean, you hear about that a lot where the, the Volta ball pythons are famous for being huge compared to like your standard ball python. You've easily got animals that are six foot six plus feet long weigh like yeah six thousand to eight thousand grams you know just massive females like they look a little bit different in the head too mm -hmm. so i've had conversations with travis wyman about this before where like while they probably do have like thing a little bit different about them because i mean size is genetic but at the same time you can't deny that while we have like our standard ball python collection area the areas outside of that, the females are going to be able to get a lot older. And by being yeah. a lot older, they're going to be able to get a lot bigger. You see that with the most python species. 
you know, I've seen pictures of snake catchers in Australia holding up their nine and a half foot long coastals. And if you know what an old snake looks like, you can look at yeah. those animals like that is an old ass snake. Like yeah. all the huge ones you see people holding, like they had the clear look in the head of like that snake is 20. That snake would be like 27 years old. That snake was born in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's funny you bring that up because I was actually just talking to a friend about if you look at the white throats monitors that are like in southern Transvaal, most of the people they whack them with a shovel because they have this folklore about them that they're they're you know gonna eat their babies or some crap. And this is not tribal people, this is western normal modern 21st century humans that are still whacking them with shovels. But if you I go mean, you see that with rednecks down here, like yeah, that's true. But if you go, you know, uh, uh 200 miles southwest and you're into eastern cape and you it's you'll be hard pressed to find an adult that's not over five foot you know just because nobody's whacking with shovels down there so yeah and you ask them about the specific animals you say like look we have we see the giants with the big heads and all that kind of stuff because like they have a burmese python head versus yeah. like your bar like your standard ball python head yes but he also says you know, Stephen Tillis, when he was out there, he's like, look, you caught your standard looking ball pythons in the same general habitat and place where you also see the giants. Yeah. So I don't know. But I think there is also a, a, a size element, to, a genetic element to size. Like you can't deny that a Madu retic is going to be a lot smaller than a mainland retic. Sure. Or anything like that. But also, you know, if we let if we stop collecting ball pythons in Togo at all, and just the people got Thanos snapped away and nature right. retook it, you know, yeah. you probably find giant ball pythons all over Togo. Sure. So sure. I don't know. That's my vault. That's my Volta ball python rant is. I like it. It's probably some of both. There's genetics, but there's also no one's, no one's whacking them with a shovel. No one's putting them in a bag and sending them to America sure. when they're five years old. So they're, you know, 31 living out in the forest somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Being six and a half feet long. 100%. 100%. Well, gentlemen, we are well past the two-hour mark. Yep. You guys have any uh, last touch points you want to brief on? Nope. I think I'm good. All right. Well, this was episode 89. What's that? Episode nine. I've got to clean rats tomorrow. Yes, yes, you do for 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 an actual job, not your own. Right, right. Yes, and I I'm caught myself. Rat. I caught myself, Justin. I was gonna say eighty nine. I did. It's <laughs> ninety. This is episode ninety of Snakes and Stogies, courtesy of the Urban Culture Network, brought to you by Puget Sound Pythons, Gendra, the Gendra. So, everyone, have a good evening. We'll be back Thursday for THP number 136. Nice. Uh, I think we're going to try and get Graham Battison on. I don't mm. know if it's going to happen or not. I've been trying to get Graham on for a hot minute, but schedules are squirrely. So. All right. All right, y'all. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.